You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning Layer 1s to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Delphi Media. I'm Tommy Shaughnessy. Tyler actually got me to shed my TradFi name and go back to Tommy, which I'm super excited about. I've known Tyler for five years now? Yeah, 20, uh, uh, beginning of 2018, yeah. Damn. So it's been, and that was while I was still at Oppenheimer, yep. before 51%, before Delphi, so you're a real friend, a yeah. non-crypto yeah. original friend. So you've never done a real podcast. No, this will be the first. Be first. I know you as having some of the most incredible outperforming gains in the space for an individual. I know you don't want to share the number, but I know the number, and that's why you're here. So I'm excited to get into it. Let's start with how you got started in crypto, and we'll go from there. Um, yeah, so my crypto story starts really back in 2010. And so um, I had gotten jaw surgery. I was kind of looking for like a fun project that that I could do. Um, and I just had a bunch of time on my hands. Uh, so I decided to build a Hackintosh. And a Hackintosh is when you take like off the shelf parts and you build a computer that's capable of running OS X because you can't just use um, uh, regular parts because not everything is, is supported by, by, by Apple. So I did that and I built this crazy powerful computer, like more powerful than what you can you know actually buy from Apple itself. Um, but I was really more of a laptop guy and I was looking for ways to monetize that, um, that pretty expensive piece of hardware. And I just started looking online, uh, like, oh, you know, how can you monetize like an idle computer? And I was looking for different ways to do that. And, um, what did you spend to build this thing? And what was like an actual price of just a Mac? So I probably spent, um, 2500 bucks or something like Jeez, that 10 years but, ago that's a lot bro. yeah yeah but <laughs> yeah. but but it was probably six times more powerful than the most expensive mac you could get which was you know if you fully decked it out eight thousand ten thousand bucks so so but but it, it wasn't like a super 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 computer but it was incredibly powerful like that's with 40 all, 50 grand of mac that you built for less because six times more powerful eight Grand yeah, 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 yeah. So it was it was pretty crazy. Yeah. So, but but yeah. So basically, I was just like I had this really powerful machine, but I was using my laptop, um, and I was about to head off to college, and so I was like, okay, so what can I do to to earn money? So I started um, just googling, like, hey, how can I earn some money here? And uh, uh, one of the things I ran across was Bitcoin. Nice. And so this was right. This would have been April of two thousand ten, and. Um, yeah. Early on in crypto. Early, early, early. Yeah. And so, but like I was going through the message boards and um, uh, was learning about it. I'm like, oh, this would make so much sense. You know, I could mine it, I could sell it. And people were getting pretty like good, you know, uh, dollar-based returns. Oh, yeah. um, but the sad part of the story is I never did it. 
<laughs> and so why not? Yeah. So so what happened was there were two things. So I, I sort of read the comments and people again were as a skeptical, I mean more skeptical about Bitcoin than, than today. Right. That's a decade ago. And more. so what people were saying was like, look, all you're gonna do is you're just gonna blow through your computer's hardware. And um, like, why would you do that? Right. Terrible, terrible comment. Most expensive decision made. So that was one. And the other one was that I was living at home uh, while, while recovering from the surgery. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's going to raise my parents' electricity. Free electric, Tyler. By, by like 60 yeah. bucks a month. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah. And so, so I thought, yeah, maybe I could get like $100 a month. And I'm like, uh, uh, especially with like the hassle, because there was no exchange. Yeah. Right. So you had to do everything OTC and that and PayPal. And I'm like, you know what? It's just, it's too much of a hassle. I didn't want to bother with it. So I did nothing with it between April 2010, really until September of um, 2011. Did you game on this thing? Was there any use? No, no. It was, it was so I had, I just built it just to see if like I could. And, and I thought like, Hey, like, let me have a really powerful computer. The, the problem with Hackintoshes is that, um, the up, it's very difficult to update them uh, because because they're not recognized by Mac. Yeah. So you have to do a bunch. Of, and I sort of just thought, which even more, I should have just put Linux on it and then just, uh, you know. What do you think you would have mined? Like any, I, did you run the numbers? Like any idea what you would have got? I know this hurts. I, I, I think it's probably upper nine digits. <laughs> it's it's very sad. We wouldn't be here right now. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, right, but no, this, I mean, it was still, I don't even think there was GPU mining. Probably not. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the info on the message boards must have been super scarce. Like, yeah, I, just I, dealing with random people you've never met. I mean, back then was rough. I mean, OTC stuff today is still sketchy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and so it was, but but and, and like, I don't want to overplay my hand here, which is like, I was in and out within yeah, like yeah. a couple of days. But I, I really did like look into to doing it, and uh, and I was just like, oh man, I just. I just pass and it's, it's one of the most expensive decisions I've ever made. I wish you at least tried it. Yeah. yeah. Just to have that <laughs> well, NFT date of. Uh. And, and, the, and, the, and the sad thing too is that like, especially because I went to college that, you know, that August, right? And free electricity, right? Oh, in, yeah. in college. Yeah. And so um, at that time, I, uh, I just, I never set it up um, to start mining. And so um, anyway, but that, that sort of that, that initial story really got into it for real um, well, I guess, you know, I, I got into it sort of again, just a little bit in September, 2011. Okay. This was the debt crisis. Um, if, if you remember it in the summer, 2011. High school. Yeah, yeah. Brutal. And so, um, uh, I had taken out a lot of options on, uh, gold because I thought, huh, like, you know, I'm always sort of looking for very like, um, bullish or bearish. Uh, uh, bullish. Got it. Right. Cool. So, um, belief being, huh, like the narrative could change here very quickly if, you know, the, Repub uh, the Republicans wanted to, you know, spite Obama and, you know, drag this out, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. So gold markets really hit, I think actually they're all time high sometime, you know, in summer 2011. Mm -hmm. um, so that turned out real well. But I really, that's when I started diving into the thesis of non custodial store of wealth. And so, this is where, you know, I got interested in art and comics. My, my brother is a big comic book collector. I'll tell you more about that with NFTs because it played out very well with, you know, my crypto punks. Yep. But, but um, uh, and so I, I stumbled across Bitcoin. Again, I'm like, that thing is still around? And <laughs> Where's so, my computer I built? <laughs> right. Try this out. <laughs> and, and like, right. And again, when I was there, like, like I think I saw the $10,000, like, or what was it? The um, 10,000 Bitcoin for 50 buck. Uh, post God. back in the day because I think that was like May of 2010 uh, so something like that but um, 
yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, and this thing's worth a lot more, yada, yada. And so it was just, again, the infrastructure wasn't there. So um, I think I picked up like a couple um, Bitcoin back in the day, uh, but it really wasn't. Um, What'd you buy at? It's got to be under. Uh, it it would have been, it would so that would have been September 2011. And I think it was just, I, I really don't remember. It was, but it was only like 50 bucks. It really wasn't. Yeah. But now I guess, the, I guess if, it, but then half of it is I literally just forgot about it. Well, the um, funny I part is, I mean, you it. didn't find crypto early on because of Silk Road. Like you weren't buying yeah, yeah. and have extra, like you didn't find it because of anything like mischievous. You yeah. found that of like a real want to use hardware that you had. And then you found it again because of like macro events that drove you to want to allocate to something that's unseizable. Yeah. So you had like a, a good reasoning to get in. You didn't just like get lucky and get like a lot of earlier people. Well, I think we'll talk about that. Yeah, no, no. I mean, and so, so the thesis made so much sense from the beginning, yeah. but it was so darn difficult to use. Again, there were, there were no um, mnemonic wallets at the time. So if you wanted to back up, you had this, I don't know, 128 character, oh God. Um, randomly, you know, generated, uh, that you hope you don't lose. That you hope you don't lose. And there, there were no hardware wallets. There were no software. I mean, there were no mobile wallets. It was not easy, right? Like you were doing everything yourself, either with the original Bitcoin um, uh, node software or uh, I, I guess, I don't remember. So I, didn't, I don't think I got Electrum until like 2012 or something like that. But basically it was, um, it was finally the thing that really kicked me in and then I stayed in was the, uh, the crisis in Cyprus. Okay. Um, that, when was that? That was early 2013. Okay. Um, so I was sort of picking up steam again by the end of 2012, but um, I, I ha- only had a thesis that, hey, unseizable store of wealth was uh, something that we really need. And the fact that we can now do it dig- digitally was really cool. But it, with the Cyprus bail-ins, I'm like, now I get it. Because it's always like too easy to think as an American, because we have access to such good banking that... Um, that everyone else in the world does. What happened to Cyprus again? So what happened was basically, you know, they were very much in debt. Their banks had extended loans to, to whether it was Greece or, or I don't remember who it was, but they were involved in some really bad loans. Their banks needed a huge bailout. Um, there wasn't the political um, uh, will for it, mostly like from the EU. So they did a bail-in. So they seized customers' deposits, um, anything above the, you know, whatever the, the threshold was. I can't imagine waking up to that. Yeah. I can't imagine. Can you? I mean, <laughs> yeah, geez, you are right. We do think very US centric. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it was just really with that, I, I really became all in. And so that was, um, yeah, that, that would have been like February, March, I think, of, of 2013. Okay. So three years go by. You're starting to compound your own thesis yeah. for why you want to be involved in crypto. Yeah. And then what happens post Cyprus? Uh, I, I really go all in. And so um, at the time I, I was in college and I was, I, I majored in cognitive science with a focus on judgment and decision-making. And um, I actually- Here we go. You, you're the, the poster child for it, acting out against the entire world going to crypto. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, so what was cool was, um, you know, I, I had to write my undergraduate thesis and um, I originally actually was going to write it on the cognitive science of money. Um, and that was going to be uh, supervised by uh, Bob Schiller, who ended up winning, winning the Nobel wow. Prize. Yeah, except he won it in fall of 2013. And so he had agreed to be my thesis advisor, and then I never heard from him <laughs> after, after he won the Nobel Prize. So I had to pick, I had to find new thesis advisors. I, I had, could see why he was busy. <laughs> no, and he's such a nice guy too, right? So, so, but he, he became very busy that fall for a very good reason. So, but then I had to find a new, th- but I'd already started a lot of work on the cognitive science of money, which was really cool. 
been very helpful with crypto. Uh, but then what's been even more helpful is I moved over to the cognitive science of financial bubbles. Um, so focusing on those two things has been incredibly helpful. Um, and so, you know, I was really tempted out of school to go full-time into crypto, but um, when did you get into crypto? God, 2017. Okay. Yeah. So the problem was back in 2014 when I graduated was um, it seems like the only things that you could really do in crypto were launch an exchange, launch a wallet. Um, I guess that was it. That right? was it. And I felt like, okay, neither of those things, I also felt it was too late. Um, in, in, 2014. <laughs> in 2014, it's too late, which is funny because Brian Armstrong has the same story, which he said when he was starting Coinbase in 2011, he felt, oh man, it's too late. The game's over. I mean, well, Mt. Gox was back. Yeah. Crushing it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I thought it was too late in 2014, which is, is funny too, because I remember going through like, like, hey, how could I be involved in crypto and all this other stuff? And um, one of the things I looked into was WhatsApp and why did WhatsApp win among all the messengers? And the, um, the core is that they were um, supported on the most number of phones. Mm. And, and really what it was, it was the long tail drove the mainstream adoption, which is, look, if, you know, imagine we have 100 friends and one of our friends has, you know, a, a Nokia flip phone that barely runs uh, apps, right? And everyone else at the time has an iPhone or a BlackBerry. Well, because of that one person, we may all need to download WhatsApp. Weakest link. Because because they're the only ones that can uh, that makes sense. use it, and so what I what I, my thesis for the ex, for an exchange at the time was oh what if we were really aggressive about listing every single token and like this is you know what FTX and Binance and all the other guys have done but like I just didn't have the background or anything like that and I just I I didn't think that we were um, I also didn't think that it would be necessarily an interesting enough play because I very wrongly thought oh, the banks are going to be in this tomorrow. You're going to be able to buy Bitcoin from your bank account. and uh, Still can't do it. Still can't do it. Yeah. So uh, mistake there. But yeah, and then so um, did a startup focusing in wireless, which has been very interesting for the reasons that- That's that, how we met. That you know about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did a startup in wireless and um, then worked at Google between uh, April 2020 to, uh, to May 21 in the payments team, which has also sort of been an interesting experience. And then since May have been, you know, full-time in crypto, but obviously investing my own money along the way. Yeah. And the crazy part though, is you've been in crypto so long and you're not a Bitcoin maximalist and you're not no. an ETH maximalist. You're not burnt out of the space. You're not bored of it. I can't name a lot of people off the top of my head that go back to 2010 that aren't either retired and doing something else, which seems super boring or, you know, beach gets old or a full-blown maximalist for some reason. And why do you think that is? I mean, when I view your Twitter, like you're always out there debating people, thinking first principles, you know, not going with the flow of people. And everyone says they're not, but you're literally out there arguing with people on why they're wrong. Why are you still doing that 10, 11, 12 years in? Yeah. Um, so I, I was such a Bitcoin maximalist really up until 2016 or so. And I really took the line that was sort of promoted by the core devs which is, oh, Bitcoin will just adopt anything that's good. And, um, but like the first crack in the wall was I read the lightning paper when it came out in like 2013, 2014, whenever that was. And I'm like, well, well this makes no sense. Like, and you and I have a finance background and anyone who, who read this goes, you can't run a world 
escrowing all the money, right? Like this has to, you have to have productive capital. And this is sort of where software engineers can design a solution that works, but it doesn't work financially. And, and that was sort of the first crack in the wall. Um, and then it was, you know, not raising the block size or not doing other things that would really scale. Um, and then uh, in 2016, right, I, I participated in the Ethereum ICO in 2014. Um, I, I subscribed to Bitcoin Magazine and uh, there was just this one author who really impressed me and uh, it was Vitalik. And so when, <laughs> nice. he, when he announced he was going to launch this, this blockchain and he, he's such a good writer too. He is he's, really good. Right. Um, but so, so I, I put in way too little and we can talk about bet sizing later, but, but I, I, yeah. I had no thesis on bet sizing or anything back then. Um, but, but I did participate in the, a little bit, it was like 200 bucks or whatever. It's good to know though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but, uh, 200 bucks is a Ethereum gas transaction on a busy day. Oh, right. Oh no. no I mean, no. So, so there was, there was a time, uh, in, in the craziness where I was spending about $5,000 a day on, on, on <laughs> Ethereum gas. I think I remember those days. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, uh, uh, it really wasn't until, um, Ethereum launched and I could see if nothing else, that it was an amazing fundraising platform. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and then it, it took me a while to really be convinced that secure smart contracts could be written. Um, the Dow hack really set sort of me back like mentally. I, I wasn't, a participant in it because I yeah. thought it was really haphazardly run and I ended up being right. But what concerned me about it was, Hey, if these guys can't write it and you know, Vitalik was reviewing the code and, or I, I don't know if he was re reviewing it, but he was certainly sort of giving the thumbs up to, um, to the Dow. I wasn't sure that, you know, smart contracts actually could be written in a secure way. That was way. early. Yeah, yeah. That was early on. Was there any pushback mentally for you that, Hey, Secure smart contracts can be built on Bitcoin, or what was the? No. So, so I, I'm oh rootstock, right? Do you remember yep. that? So, um, <laughs> that's a... so I, I mean, rootstock was promoting themselves as smart contracts on Bitcoin, yep. and it, it took all of I don't know half an hour for me to go through whatever they were writing and realize that this is not on Bitcoin at all, right? It's a completely federated system. It, it in some like. It, it, there, there's nothing really decentralized about it. These nodes can be shut down by, you know, authorities. There, there's certainly a, a not one choke point, but you know, thirty choke points or whatever it is, enough that it's not meaningfully um, uh, resilient to to the type of attacks that the Bitcoin community uh, were, were thinking about. So I, I wrote that off very quickly, um, and I always was afraid that 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 might have been wrong to move on, but it turned out to be. So right. the reason why I keep asking you why you didn't become a Bitcoin maximalist, oh, yeah. you know, why didn't you just, you know, love Rootstock, love Lightning, and the reasons why you dispelled them is because I want to know, you know, what, how you're still doing that today. Because, like, I run into people all day, and there's an amazing DeFi projects, new L1s, as you know, new L2s, all popping up, and you're starting to see the same thing again, right? People start to fall in love with these things, they get addicted, they get tunnel vision, they don't want to see other plays. You, like didn't have tunnel vision at the most pivotal moment in crypto, which was the switch between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And you held on to that and you're still doing it today. And I think that advice to people is really important. Yeah. And so I would say it's the way that I sort of have come to crypto and, you know, now what we call DeFi, there was no DeFi name, you know, 10 years ago. Um, it's that I have a sort of a theory of how finance should work. And so anytime, you know, a project fulfills that 
thesis more and more, the more likely I am to, um, you know, pivot away from my, my previous positions. And so, you know, if, if Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever sort of lets me down or lets that thesis down, like I'm married to the thesis, right? I'm a thesis maximalist rather than a specific chain. Yeah. Chain or token. That makes a lot of sense. So using that worldview, you want to talk winners first? You want to talk losers? What's more interesting? Uh, I think the losers are Let's much losers. much more interesting to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So um, before we jump into losers, I probably should say some of some of the winners. Absolutely. So I would say right. So early to Bitcoin, early to Ethereum. I bought. I know buying a lot more than two hundred. But I know. But yeah. <laughs> that was just the ICO. That was the one but night. That, that was yeah. the ICO. Uh, and and boy, I should have backed to the yep. track there. But <laughs> but anyway. So um and then like um. 2017 was not a particularly good, I ended up losing money in 2017 just because I didn't get out um, early enough. And I rode that thing down because I really had the, uh, the, the love of the thesis. And I'm like, Hey, this thing is delivering. Like it's going to get there. We're just, we're just in a bumpy point right now. But um, 2017 was a different world though. I mean, 2017 wasn't full fledged DeFi yet. No NFTs, DAOs, multi-chain. None of that was here. Very fraudulent yeah. teams too. We don't see nearly as many fraudulent. So teams many fraud teams. Yeah. And it's funny cause we all knew. Like, it we, we was all so knew. obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I have some other stories <laughs> after <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure I can go on the podcast. <laughs> Stop recording. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So, but, but this cycle has been just phenomenal, like for me. And so, um, I think the first one that really kicked off uh, in December 2019 was start picking up synthetics. And this is sort of when you and I reconnected and you inter- were introducing me to the Delphi team. And like I had this thesis on synthetics. You guys had this in- this thesis on synthetics. And um, it was one of those things where I'm like, there's a lot of problems with this. But if I, I basically was betting on the team, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, this has some interesting traction. It has one of the best tokenomics that you can see on value accrual. Um, just because you have to lock up so much synthetics that if it took off, it was really going to start running. What was that collat ratio back then? Seven hundred fifty. Yeah, seven hundred. Yeah, six hundred. Yeah, and then it's yeah, it's it's whatever it is. Yeah. And so so I mean I think I and then you know this was back when Dejan Spartan was uh was all the rage, right? Yeah. And, well, it was hard not to bet on Kane. I mean, that yeah. guy was an absolutely relentless machine. And there were so few projects actually out there, right? Yeah. They had a working product. Um, that kind of made sense. They had a killer community. They were doing community calls. They were implementing. They were shipping code. Kane was a fearless leader. It yeah. made sense. Yeah. And so um, I would say that was the first of sort of this cycle where it was like, yeah, this was a really good winner and sort of bought some, like, I think it was low teen in cents and then um, loaded up a lot more, like closer to 40 cents. And then, you know, exited in January of 21, closer to 20 bucks and, and stuff like that. Jeez, so all of a return. <laughs> that, 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 that was a good one. Um, but the one that really, but, and, and the position sizing for synthetics was decent, yeah. um, but not, not. Learn that Ethereum lesson. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the one where, I, where sort of like thesis meets position sizing meets crazy returns for me was Ave. And so, um, you know, that's th- uh, Santiago's too, I think. Yeah, 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 it's his his claim to fame as well. I mean, he has many, but that was a big one. Yeah, so I got involved in Ave, I think around February of 2020. Okay. Um, and so it was just like it was one of those things where I did so much research because I could not understand why this thing was trading at such a low valuation. You had um, Compound sort of as the 800 pound gorilla, and it had no token. 
but you could see based off of the valuations it was raising from uh, Andreessen, right? I think they had raised a 25 million Series A round, something like that. Yeah. I figured, okay, Andreessen valued this thing at, at least, you know, it was still 2019, right? Um, well, when I was looking at Ave, it was 2020. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but I was just like, okay, so, you know, compound and, and that was, I don't know when they raised their Series A. But, but I remember doing that research. I'm like, okay, back at that time, you know, they must've been worth at least a hundred, 150 million. And, um, here was little old Ave trading at like 10 million bucks. <laughs> and so I'm like, is the team a fraud? Like FTV was 10 mil. It was 10, 10 mil. Wow. Right. And so, so this was, this was back when it was lend. And yeah. so there were at the time, like a billion lend and they were trading at like a little around a penny. So it was like, I was buying it at like 1.2 pennies. Um, per, per lend. And then they did the, the hundred to one reverse split. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they, they, sorry. So, so I found Ave and, um, uh, what was really amazing about Ave was the fact that you could also borrow against it. Yeah. And so, but basically going, going back to Ave, like the thesis there was, um, uh, I saw a compound not support so many assets, right. And you had very, very few things that you could, actually borrow against. And what I realized was not only was Ave a terrific catch-up trade, right? Potentially just 10, 15 X just on the catch-up side Relative of things. trade there is easy. Yeah, yeah. But but the the big one was the fact that there were things that Ave was supporting that had real communities, including synthetics, yeah. actually, that, um, though again, you should be sort of leveraging synthetics within the synthetics platform. But, but there were things that you could do with Ave that you could not do with Compound. And I'm like, wow, like this is a really like powerful platform. I didn't understand all of the things about shared pool risk that I, now that I do, but um, I'm like, you know, I'm such a fan of monopolies, right? How is Ave shipping so much faster than Compound at that time? Um, so I'm not sure that they were shipping faster, but they were enabling more tokens. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, Ave, I don't know if they were at the time, but Ave uses Chainlink as their Oracle. So they could just support more, assets from a technical perspective, whether they sure. should or not from a token risk is, is sort of, uh, up for debate and, and compound had taken a much more, um, risk averse method that I think stranded a lot of deposits where they could only use Ave at the time. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So you loaded up Ave. Yeah. So loaded up on Ave and then basically was borrowing against Ave in order to do a lot of yield farming back in the day. And so it was just a really like virtuous cycle where I could close out my yield farms, which were, you know, unlikely, let's say to crash at any given moment, but Ave might crash. And I was like, okay, I'll just pay back the debt. Like as soon as I can. And I would go like, you know, balls to the wall leverage while I was awake. And then before I was asleep, I, I'd, I'd, sh I'd, I'd shut things down so I could still farm a little at night. But it, if you were to look at the transactions, right? Like that's, that's the difference. It's so funny because anyone that remembers like DeFi summer or any yeah. of these early things, you would always either not sleep or have to. Yeah. Unrest. I mean, we went days without sleeping. Oh yeah. Just do, do you remember sushi? Like that, that ordeal sushi? I remember... Uh, so I, I mean, I just met my girlfriend at the time and then, uh, I was farming safe with Nexus, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I remember leaving her apartment at four in the morning after knowing her for a week. She texted me like, what the hell do you do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, don't worry about it. The funds are safe. We're good. Yeah. Safu, but, right? Yeah. Safu. But it, it is a crazy trade though, because this is earlier in DeFi. You're investing in something that is well below compound on every metric, community, liquidity, maybe asset supported, maybe not. Cause Ave had more. Yeah. 
but like, how did you get comfortable sizing up that position so much? Cause I'm assuming this is like a big percentage of your portfolio. I'm not sure if you shared. Yeah. I mean, so, so going back to like the thesis, right? Like I knew that there needed to be a way to borrow against long tail assets. And so, um, th there obviously would be demand for a product like that. Ave was the only one supporting certain assets. And the one thing that I've learned, especially, you know, through, through Bitcoin is never bet on the market leader adopting, um, sort of the things that they need to, in order to it sort of stay competitive, happens. right. They, they get, you know, uh, too comfortable, too lazy, um, and, and too risk averse. Cause they're like, why, why rock the boat when things are going so and well? The, just the coordination of it is so hard. I mean, even as Ethereum, Bitcoin, hard, hard to sell a change. Ethereum, I mean, even harder. I mean, yeah. look how fast Solana implements fixes and changes. Yeah. Way more centralized than Ethereum, but it works for them right now. Yeah. And that's key. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so then basically just like blasting through like the other, other winners. And then we'll talk about the losers, I've, which I think are more fun. But, um, but basically, right. So did well on Wi-Fi, did well on ThorChain, um, was very early to Osmosis. Mm -hmm. Um, and CryptoPunks and, uh, what are you what? rolling each winner, the complete size into the next one or uh, is this to totally depends on bet sizing, okay. right? So, so what I would say is, and, and one of the things I was going to talk about with bet sizing is like the importance of exposing yourself to, um, very unlikely bets with insanely high returns. My view is that no matter what my thesis is, if I miss a hundred X return, I've made a mistake. Right. And, and there's something wrong in my process if I don't, if I can't get those, because those are such, right. You put 1% of your fund or your portfolio into a hundred X or you've doubled the fund right there. Exactly. So, um, yeah. anyway, yeah. So, uh, I'm trying to think. And then, so the, um, there are a lot of others, there are others too, where like, they're not, you know, like 50 X returns, which were all, all of those things sort of ended up being, but, um, uh, other ones too, just sort of right place, right time. Sort of. Does the craziness of what you did yield farming with that much size that early exist anywhere today? Cause I'm no. trying to tell people a comp uh, and there isn't one. No, there's not yeah. right. Like, like you can't, you like, I can't even yield farm anymore. Like the, the risk reward is no longer there. It's not there. Agreed. It's, it's just, it's not even worth. Like I don't even spend time really researching farms just because the bots can move in so quickly. They're, you know, hedging out the risk. I mean, I was hedging out the risk, but I, I, I'm not a programmer, so I can't move as fast as them. And I'm like, look, if you're the dumbest guy at the poker table, you get up, yeah. right? Like, just don't don't try to play it just because you used to be the king. But like 10% here, like, I don't even put my money in Ave now. Like, 2-3%, yeah, yeah. no. it's not worth the risk. It's not even worth the time. It was never, for me, worth the the yield that you could get on the deposits, it was always about the leverage you could get. Got it. So barring against your ETH, barring against your Aave or, or whatever it was, was more important. What would be the mayhem today? Like just massive leverage on perps? Like, I, I mean. Um, so I've been looking at what, yeah, what could you do with the funding rates on perp, yeah. right? Like are there, I, I, and I think there might be, uh, I, I'm not gonna dive too much in. After you execute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, once, once the thesis is played out, yeah. but I think there are some interesting ways to, really hedge out a lot of the a lot of the perp risk with while getting some yield. But again, you might be talking twenty percent, thirty percent annualized yields compared to, you know, I was getting fifty six hundred percent on some of a lot of my early the, funds. The numbers right? would, would run out of room on the web pages. <laughs> I, I, I mean I mean so like I, there was, you know, for a good amount of time I was like, this only yields four percent a day. This isn't worth my time, right? I'm like four percent <laughs> compounding, compounding, yeah. compounding, right? Um, and so, so that was sort of um, 
that was a moment in time that that will never come back again. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny because we all knew it would end. Yes. And there were so many hacks at that time. I mean, we were aping into stuff running that compare tool where you compare the, you know, the code versus the yeah. original contract, the master chef, whatever the hell it was. And we yeah. were just looking for changes and no changes aping. Yep. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I've never been in a rug pull or anything like that. I don't really think, never. Yeah. Damn. I have. I, but I, I, I consider that to be more by the grace of God than, than anything else. Yeah. Cause I wasn't doing anything fundamentally different um, than everyone else. Right. I was, you know, yeah. doing the diff check and, uh, and, you know, talking to you were moving in like, Const, not even like size because it was size, but you're also moving with leverage with a concentrated portfolio, and those two things I don't think not, many people did. Not, uh, I wouldn't say I had a very concentrated portfolio. Okay. Um. So and, and like I've I have always thought you really need to expose yourself to upside. So I guess what would you consider a concentrated portfolio? I don't know. I mean, fifty percent in one play, maybe twenty five in another. Rest spread something. So I've. I've, I've done that in the past, but it would be rare and it would be where, you know, I was highly levered because it was a 4% a yield day thing. And I knew enough about the project that I'm like, okay, worst case scenario, this thing collapses and, um, you know, you're stuck with the, the gov tokens and, uh, and you, you know, you hope there's enough liquidity. And so what I can say is from black Thursday until April of 21, I only had one losing trade like that. I, I lost uh, like on paper, I had paper losses, yeah. right? But only one losing trade where I closed out, but it was in such size that I lost like 20% of the whole portfolio in like six hours. Oh um, and basically what happened was I had sized the bet so big because I was like, okay, here's the upside, here's the downside. And, and, and basically here's the max loss that that could happen. Yeah. The max loss ended up being 25% worse than my worst case scenario. And so my hedges got blown out and it cost me 20% of the portfolio in, uh, in, in a couple hours. That had to have hurt. It did. That's so I, I, I learned, right? Like, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm glad I took the bet because that's yeah. how the rest of sort of the, the portfolio as well sort of. Yeah, you can't look at one. Yeah, you can't yeah. look at one, but. Um, it, it was definitely hard. And so I, I sort of added, like you learn from your mistakes more yeah. than your winners. Um, yeah. So let's transition. Did you farm Wi-Fi though? I did farm Wi-Fi. Yeah. yeah. So that, that, that's why Wi-Fi was one of my big winners was because I was farming Wi-Fi, but also picking it up at like 800 to 1200 bucks. And so that just like, then, that was such a magical time. That was a magical drop time. That. I mean, that, those couple of weeks in that early summer was like a new world. Yeah. It, it felt like a magical time. Like he's launching this thing, you automatically, you don't have to look at it. It's free launch. It just felt great. It's, it's just crazy, right? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, money was falling from the sky and your biggest problem at the time was, was your bucket big enough to carry it, right? Like, <laughs> right. right. And like, like, and so, so going back to sleep, right? Um, no, I, I figured out, um, oh my goodness, every hour of sleep cost me this much money. <laughs> I'm staying um, up. Right. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it, it yeah. was, it was, a that was a time. fun summer, Yeah, but I mean, I didn't go as aggressive as I should have that summer because frankly, yeah. I didn't react quick enough. I, I know I thought it was interesting. I thought it was cool, but it was risky. I mean, there it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if, if, if you hadn't hedged out a lot of, and, and it was very difficult to do, yeah. um, because you couldn't borrow like assets to then go yield farm them. Um, it, it was a very risky time. It, it was, should we talk losers? Yeah. Let's talk losers. So <laughs> the stuff I, we learned from. Yeah. So I would say, look, like the first real, real big loser that I had was uh, Monero. 
And so this was, this was 2017. And I I wrote a little thread on this, which was, I was real early to Monero too. I was picking it up at like 10 bucks. Um, Monero, for those who don't know, privacy coin, basically you're bashed with a lot of other users. You obfuscate where your funds go compared to like Zcash, which is just teleporting in time. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So they use ring signatures versus, you know, the, the ZK snarks of Zcash. There there was no Zcash back when I was investing in Monero. It was just sort of a uh, Zcash was a white paper, right? But um, I thought Monero was so cool. Um, it made so much sense. It's it's part of my larger thesis of privacy transactions. I'm like, wow, this thing is really interesting. So I started picking up when it was, this was- In the, 2017? 2017. Okay. So I was picking up like, uh, what was it? It would have been January to April or something of, of 2017. So before the, the real bull run in 2017 started. Okay. And so- um, uh, picking that up, but the mistake that I made and, and I ended up losing money overall on the Monero position was I kept adding more and more, which was as it went up, I kept thinking my thesis was confirmed. And so I was pulling from Bitcoin. I was pulling from Ethereum and other holdings to buy more Monero. I don't know if that's a mistake though. I mean, averaging up on your winners could be massive. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, I mean, that, yeah, that, I, I mean, think you did that on synthetics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, so, but, but what I did really, what, and I didn't really have a risk, um, uh, strategy framework back then. Um, so I just kept adding to, to Monero. I'm like, this, this is the next Bitcoin. Right. And, you know, it was trading at, I don't even remember the market cap at the time, but, but it was substantially lower than Bitcoins. And I'm like, the worst case scenario is this thing beats Bitcoin. Right, which was stupid, but but, but I'm like that. that case, it automatically wins. <laughs> so that, that's that's the that was the thesis. Yeah. Right, sorry, there was a lot more to thesis to it, but but I was like, okay, like this is better than Bitcoin, really in every way, especially because it had fixed one of my biggest concerns, which were adaptive block sizes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with the way Monero works with, with block sizes, but it's it's really quite interesting. Um, anyway, so I kept adding to it, kept adding to it, and it looked genius. Is that I, during Block size battle or no, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, block size battle was 2017. Adaptive made sense. Okay. Adaptive made, to me, it made a lot of sense. And so, um, uh, I thought, Hey, this thing is going to be the winner. And it looked, you know, like a positively inspired bet as Monero hit like 450. Um, when did you start buying around like 10? Oh my God. And so, and this was, you know, under a year. And so, um, but, but I just kept adding and adding and adding, but then as the market, like, I think it peaked at 450. Okay. Um, uh, in 2017. Um, but then it crashed and as did the rest of the market. And I just kept holding and holding and holding. And, uh, because I rode that thing all the way down, I actually ended up losing money. You DCA it all the way up and then, yeah, yeah. there you go. So, um, but, but that I learned more about risk from that than anything else. And that's what really caused me to spend a lot more time on bet sizing, on on taking some chips off the table, on your winners and and stuff like that. Do you no longer dollar cross average on the way up anymore? No, no I definitely will. You do, it. Um, okay. But but I'm, it has to be because sort of the numbers dictate it. Okay, but I mean the numbers would have dictated it back then, right? That was more of a macro issue. Um, no, I I, I think that if if I were sort of running the numbers that I, I or the frameworks that I that I have today. Um, it probably never would have been more than 15, 20% of my portfolio. Okay. That's um, fair. and so the, the pain would have been bad. I mean, the market got annihilated. It got, oh, and then look, I, I mean, I held ETH. I mean, I, I wasn't exactly adding more. I was adding more to ETH all the way up to like 300 bucks or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then it, we peaked at like 1400 in 
2017, I remember uh, those gap ups on Coinbase at night, like yeah. 1100 to 1400 on no volume. Yeah. Like, yeah. So right. 20, like 20, 20% in a day, right? Yeah. Um, this is for, you know, for everyone out there, these days are calm compared to 2017. I'm numb. It's, it's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally numb. It's just, it's not nearly as volatile. I'm waiting for something to wake me up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And so, but, but like Monero taught me a lot. And then like other, the other like loser, I haven't really had any losers this cycle other than, than one, that one time where I lost 20% yeah. on a single trade. And I'm, I'm not going to get into it for, for certain reasons, but, um, uh, yeah, but, um, the, I would say most of the losers I would say from this cycle for me have been losses of omission that there were really obvious things in hindsight that fit my theses but I pass on them for whatever reason. Yeah. And so, you know, um, I think the big one I'm kicking myself on is convex. Um, that should have been such an easy play for me to pick up. Uh, Rari was, was another really, like, you could get that for 20 cents. Um, and, and you know, you could farm it for, I'll never for forget Chris less. Black's tweet on the kids holding the multi-sig though. So oh, oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> it was so funny. I'll link to it, but yeah, no, it's a great play and they're a great team. Yeah. 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 So, so Rari was a big miss. Um, uh, other, other ones were if, if not just like totally missing it entirely would have been way too like either late to the game or on, or under allocating. Is that like just like looking back on winners or like there's so much going on in the space. Like, I mean, at Delphi we have like, I'm a generalist at this point, right? Like yeah. there's so much going on that we have specific analysts focus on specific sectors because there's so much that goes on in each vertical on each L1 or L2 in each area. Like there's no way to stay up to speed on everything anymore. And frankly, it's kind of stupid to think that you can, right? Yeah. How do you filter? So, so I, I've come to the same conclusion, which is I'm just a DeFi guy, right? And by that, I mean like real financial applications on the blockchain. Um, you know, when I kick myself for not, I mean, you were shilling me on axes back in January of 21, I remember right? Calling you. right? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I don't think so, man. Like, and again, I'm like, dude, I'm not a gamer. I don't, okay. I, I don't understand this. Like, and so I, in some ways I'm probably better off for staying inside my circle of competence, but I'm clearly worse off for not just deferring to other people when it's their circle of competence. So that's what I've done. So, you know, now when I'm like, huh, like game five is clearly going to be a thing. I don't have a thesis on it. So when, you know, you guys come to me and say, Hey, alluvium's going to be big. I go, okay, here's a check. Right. But, but I have no thesis beyond they say it's good. I don't think people are naturally comfortable deferring. I mean, it took me a long time yeah, yeah. to say, Hey, you know what? Let them do what they do. They're super smart. And yeah. I get more time to shine where I am. Yeah. And if you don't have a bias with that or, or an ego, you can let them shine and you can do your own thing. I find it still very hard though, because if you don't, like I obviously know you guys are very good at GameFi, but because I don't have a hard thesis on it, it's very hard to size my bets, right? That's fair. And so if if you guys are you know running a fund and you say, hey, you know Tyler, do you want to give us money for GameFi? I'm like, yeah, but but now I don't know how much, right? And the, and and it, it is the size that matters as much as the return because you know if you put in one percent to game five and it returns whatever versus 10%, like literally just because of your bet sizing, your cash on cash returns will be, you know, 10 times as great on a 10% allocation versus a one. Oh yeah. If I don't do the research, I don't have the conviction to size yeah. up and I don't have the conviction to hold yeah. an issue. Like I need to know the play myself, yeah. do the model myself, even if it's wrong to learn it and do it. And I think we've done that together a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's been really hard. Um, 
Yeah. So, uh, uh, focusing on that, but like I've, I've given some money to some, I don't even know what they're calling it now, like social fi or whatever. Oh God. Uh, I don't th- even know th- there's, it's not even finance, right? It's just like, like social stuff on the blockchain, which I think is going to be big, right? Like friends with benefits is, is clearly like, I don't know if they're going to be winners, but they've clearly laid out a model that someone is going to crack. Right. And yeah. so, you know, seed club is, is a very interesting, um, group that I think will probably figure that out. Hugely but, bullish on C Club. But it's yeah. but it's not it's not my area of expertise. So I kinda have to shrug my shoulders and go, all right, you guys hopefully will figure it out. Here's some money. That is a good example though. I mean you have somebody like, you know, taking C Club as an example, you have someone, Jess Loss, who spends all day long trying to help creators uh, monetize, grow their communities, whatever. Is it going to be you or I that finds that community? Right. Probably not. It'll right. be him. So yes, it's risky and it might not work, but to your point, he's the guy worth deferring to if you want to make that bet. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that's sort of how I look at like areas outside of my, um, outside of areas of my expertise and just aggressively delegate. Um, when I think like, Hey, you know, lots of people are talking about this area just because if I start picking these, like, yeah, you, you won't even have, even if you start winning, you won't have the confidence to hold after at five X's. And if it's on a way to a hundred X, you, you've just passed up an additional 20 X game. Right. So I think that that's why it's, you need to really, right. I actually love being locked out of my money. Like, <laughs> like when, when a certain play was going very well, when I invested with you guys, like, I was like, Hey, can you guys get out of this? Like, like, I, I think it's, this is it. This is top. Yeah. And then it went up another like 15 times from, yeah. <laughs> from oh, when, I, when I, I wanted to leave. Right. Well, for, for clarity, that's an angel check we did together, not yeah. through our fun, but that was, that was interesting. And that was fun. Well, Adelphi SBV. Yeah. That was a fun one though. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that kind of goes into, there's a lot of points to discuss here. One of the big ones that we always talk about is survivorship bias. These guys that got lucky, made a lot of money, we all think they're gods. What's your take on that? Yeah, so that, that's one of the things that I think why it's so important. Like, I, there's a big difference between having many expected value, uh, positive expected value bets and being diversified, right? Or the, at least I like to think so, because I think people run way too concentrated portfolios. Can you just expect a value for people? Sure. So um, the idea is, is that, you know, if you were to flip a coin, um, you know, 50, 50 odds, uh, are you, uh, how much are you expected to walk away from that, the interaction? So, you know, if I uh, give you $2 on heads and, and you, you know, uh, lose a dollar on tails, that's a positive expected value because on any given flip, you're actually expected to walk away with one extra dollar. So if you could repeat that a hundred times, you would kind of expect you'd walk away. Expected value versus chance. Exactly. Exactly. And so then there's a lot of question of, okay, well now you have an expected value bet. How much of your portfolio should you size into it? And so this is where things like, you know, the Kelly criterion come in, um, which is really the best way to determine how much of your portfolio um, any given position should have. And then there are modifications that you need to make to it um, because uh, the specific Kelly uh, criterion was um, designed more for binary bets rather than than non-binary. Okay. Um, so but, not yes, no's, but different multiple returns. Right, right. I mean, something might end up at, you know, 80 bucks a token or 70 bucks or 100 bucks, and you kind of have to give weighted probabilities to all these things. And in many ways, it's guessing, but sort of being in the right ballpark is often enough. Um, and just making sure that you're not over allocating because, you know, you control the bet size, you don't control the outcome. And that's something that I, I tell people. That's big. Yeah. I like that. That's pretty cool. So is it as easy as here's my 10 plays in Excel, 
here's the, how do you work this out? Yeah. So, um, I think that, I mean, for me, I always try to have more than 10 plays. Um, and so I think 15 is a pretty comfortable number, but they're going to be extremely different in terms of size of the portfolio. So, um, I've had things run up to over 50% of the portfolio. I've entered certain things like, like from scratch at 40% of the portfolio. And it really just has to do with, Hey, what do you think the upside is versus the downside? Um, and to put it sort of in a very simple way, which is imagine that, you know, uh, you were in a play with 0% downside and, you know, two X upside, like you would try to allocate as very much money as you could. Well, if you said, oh, well, the downside's only 5% and the upside's 2X, then there's, you know, even it's, it's not, you may not put all your portfolio into it um, or, or you might, or I mean, you have to have to run the numbers, right? Well, actually, actually you would, you would, you put in more than a hundred percent of your portfolio into a play like that, right? As assuming you could get the leverage to do so. Yeah. And so, but it's just, it's just running those numbers and trying to be dispassionate. And so the thing I would say that I feel like I've gotten a lot better at over time is just being realistic with what the upside and what the downside scenarios are for a lot of these assets there's you know things that you can't control here though right like what if your formula tells you put 10 percent of your portfolio in but if you do that on an amm with an early size play the slippage when you try and enter is going to kill your entry and that messes up your upside like that has to go into the numbers right and so um it's one of the things that you like i've had to i feel like i've had to reinvent my investing style four or five times now just in the last two years because um, as your portfolio grows, the, the stuff you were doing no longer works, right? Like, you know, back in the day, you could ape in and, and you know, with, with the exact size position that you want, and you might move the market a quarter of a point. And now, um, you know, you try to enter and you might move it 50%. These are good problems, though. These are good problems, but, but it really does change. And now, like, and, and I mean, we both felt it, which is the market's gone crazy on early stage valuations. Yeah. Um, and so not only can you not get the liquidity you want, um, you, uh, you're paying a lot more higher you valuation. You'll, you'll, we'll never, I don't think we'll ever find another Ave, right? Another Ave at 10, 10 that with a liquid token at a 10 mil valve. I don't think so either. Never happened. No, right? I don't think so either. And I mean, the valuations on the private side have gotten ridiculous. I mean, yeah. you know, 50 mil equity, but. Hilariously, as we all know, it's always two to three X on the token. Right. So you're paying 100 to 150 for something that did not have nearly as much traction as what Ave would have had probably back then. Much less traction if they've launched it all in a much more competitive market. Agreed. And so I think like the other thing too, it was I felt it was very easy to make uh, more substantial uh, as a percent of portfolio bets sort of two years ago because um, I'm still a big believer in the network effect of a lot of different, uh, of the protocols that will ultimately win. And you have to sort of be ruthless about kicking out anything that wouldn't bet from a network, benefit from a network effect. Um, Do you think anybody will be able to have a hundred, or sorry, a thousand X play like people did in the past today? Because I mean, yes. at a, even at a hundred mil value like, to- I do, I do. I mean, so look- uh, like I guess over Solana, what timeline though? Well, I mean, look at Solana. Uh, so, so if you so Solana peaked at was it two fifty? Yeah. So a thousand X would be twenty five cents. So yeah, we're one sixteen now or something. Yeah. Yeah, and so so you know if and, and I don't know how many tokens, but but let's I think that they peaked at like an eighty six billion dollar val. So if you go from an eighty six mil val to an eighty six bill val, you've thousand X. That's true. But um, today though, go forward today. Um, 
it's hard. Oh, it's it's definitely harder. And right? on the timeline that we're discussing yeah. with the valuations, like it's hard two reasons. One, the timeline, because back then you could do that if you were lucky and you size correctly, like yeah. on a much shorter timeline, but you also have the vowels working against you much, much higher today. So you have to do it on that timeline with higher vowels, with a more competitive market, with more players. Yep. I don't know if it's going to happen again. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so, I'm hopeful. I'm a VC. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. trust me, I'm looking. Yeah, so no, it's. I mean, it's. It, it really has gotten so much harder because yeah. any like you, you almost look now at teams and you go, okay, this is a real. You, I, I sort of look at okay, this is a real team with a real product. This is a real team with a terrible product, and I'd still rather invest in a real team with a terrible product and figure that they can pivot their way to success than these terrible teams with great ideas. And I, I've seen uh, several of them and I've, I've passed just because I'm like, yes, this is great on paper, but you will never figure out the, the execution. I've gotten, I mean, not to sound like stuck up, but yeah. I've just seen so many plays over the life of Delphi. Um, and there's so much to go into. I mean, the tech, the token econ, the target market, everything. But like, I cannot invest without talking to the team. And I mean, a lot of funds do like these 24 hour, 12 hour turnaround times. Here's the play. Here's what it is. We did this, but it just doesn't do it for me anymore. I can't do it. I well, can't say yes on that. The other thing that's just crazy, right? And like it happens to both of us all the time is teams come to you and say, Hey, we're closing, you know, by the end of the day, let us know what you want. I'm like, no, like, you, you know, that's not true. I, I have such a pet peeve with that. I yeah. mean, there's no way either side gets comfortable. Yeah. There's no way you can DD them. There's no way they can DD you. How do you know the play? How do you know how you're going to help them? Why do they even want you? Yeah. If you want I, dumb money, go I, get it. I, I, I just tell them, oh, well, I'm going to have to pass. And then the answer is always, oh, well, if we'll you need- get a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get a week. <laughs> yep. Always, always. Yep. And so I, I, I'm just always like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to have to- And the funny part is the docs, the legal take another two months yeah. or a month. So you're literally 24 hour closed, but you don't get the docs for three weeks later. Right, right. Yeah. So. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um. So, so it, it has been crazy. And I mean, we're going to crash at some point. Yeah. And I think it's actually going to be the best thing for the ecosystem because there's way too much talent spread out between teams. Mm -hmm. um, and when that when that happens, I think we can go back into build mo mode and uh, and we'll start seeing, you know, maybe that company that can can thousand X again in an area that we're not thinking of. You really think we're going to go down like 90% again though? I mean, there's I, so I, do, I don't think we'll go down 90. Okay. I, I don't. Um, so I have been trying to, and you and I talk about this all the time. I don't know how much we might go down. And again, if if the market let's use Ethereum as as the the bellwether. Um, if we go up to uh, ten thousand and then we crash fifty percent, we should be investing here, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Right. And so so like I, I've seen people call right. I mean, look at Peter Schiff, right? Peter Schiff, you know, has been calling for a Bitcoin crash since like single digit Bitcoin dollars, and he, you know. And Noriel Rubini is the, uh, the actually much worse than Being Peter Schiff. Being a perpetual bear to go to your point is such an EV negative take. Yeah, I mean. and, and so, but 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 you know, Noriel Rubini, I remember like Bitcoin fell twenty five percent or fifty percent over a period of of I don't know a couple of days, and he's like, "See, I told you this thesis was wrong." When he said the thesis, it was trading at like thirty five dollars, and then when when the thesis played out, you know, it was trading at four thousand dollars in Bitcoin. I'm like, this is you're taking the the wrong thing away. Agreed. So yeah. So you do you think we will crash eventually, but you do think we will go higher short term or, or? I, I don't know. So yeah. so I, I don't know. Right. I, I try just, to invest in good yeah. plays that I'm happy to hold. Um I certainly take the macro into consideration. But isn't the macro pretty bullish for us though? I mean you're way stronger than this than I am, but I mean Yeah, so 
my view is don't fight the Fed. And we weren't fighting the Fed on the way up. Why would we fight them on the way down? So the, the Fed, I mean, I don't know if you've seen Brainerd's new comments. And she's a dove. So I, I don't know really what we can can do. If, if they're going to keep hiking rates, if they're going to induce a recession in order to kill inflation, you know, we have to think about what that means for crypto. Because one of the theses I've had, I haven't seen really a lot of other people have this. Um, and I always, I'll tell you what I get countered with when I say it. But I think crypto relies on disposable income, which is so much retail is coming in with their stimmies and their, you know, but just, just their disposable income to invest in crypto. Um, and as inflation goes higher or, you know, a recession occurs, that disposable income is going to get wiped out. And so instead of seeing, you know, fund inflows into crypto, we might actually start seeing outflows. And the response I get when I, when I bring that up with really intelligent people is they say, yeah, but I think that the institutional capital that's coming into crypto is going to outpace. And my, my answer response to that normally is, yeah, but over what time frame, right? Like I'm not denying institutional capitals coming in, but you know, institute, I mean, capital is always flowing into the S and P as well until it's not. Institutions are also highly knowledgeable, sophisticated people. And if they see retail exiting, they'll wait for a better entry point. Right. They're not dumb. Well, yeah. and, and, and even if you have all of this capital being allocated to uh, VCs and, and crypto hedge funds, it doesn't matter because because the institutional capital may be quote unquote in crypto. But you know, if if you know people say, hey, you know what, we're at the peak of the bubble, and people, are, you know, hedge funds are taking money off, they could beat retail uh, to you know de-risking, and now you're in a situation where uh, you know money is just massively flowing out. So I, I so, don't know what that means. So inflation's crazy. People need more money to live. Obviously, it's pretty basic. The Fed's going to raise rates to try and curb that and fight that. Yeah. And then you think they'll put us into a recession on purpose, and then. Retail will have to pull out, but there'll be a delay until institutions funnel in. Well, that's one way things could go down. I'm not against it. I'm it's one way things yeah. could go down. And so, but I'm just like, I, I, I get worried when everyone is on one side of the boat just because it ends up getting priced in. The hard part though is given inflation, that kind of is the thesis for crypto. It definitely Which is, is kind of contrary to what you're saying. Yeah. I get what you're saying, but it is that other yeah. side of this. Like, do I want to take my money out of crypto? as somebody who has to pay more for rent, when that's the only thing in the world that's outperforming inflation for me, right. it's hard to for like a rational person to say, yes, I'd rather just sell my GameStop or whatever the hell. Right. Thing. Yeah. I, I, so, but, the, but that's the issue, right? And, yeah. and, I, and I don't know how that will play out, but I don't hear anyone talking about that possible path, which always makes me really nervous. So what do you do if you think there's gonna be a global recession? Um, I, well, if you think there's going to be a recession, I think you want to hold cash. Like I, I don't know when the market could tank. Crypto is still extremely volatile. Regulations could come down as well, which I also don't think we talk about enough. Um, there's this this belief that the government is just going to sort of like look the other way, and as it sort of has for the last decade, um, and sort of be somewhat friendly, but also imposing a crypto. And I, I don't think that's right. I, I think at some point the hammer comes down. I don't know when it will be, but, but one of the things I've, I've said several times is I don't believe that, that people, if, if USDC gets frozen, I don't think die owners are going to be able to redeem USDC from, uh, for, from the PSM. What would you be more scared about regulations or a global recession? Um, because Reci I would be a short-term recession. 
Long term, I'd be more concerned on regulations. Long term, I am more concerned about regulations. Yeah. But but again, it's sort of a question of yeah. I just I don't I don't know what that looks like um, with with regulations because it the regulations themselves matter so much. It's the difference between what China has done versus like. I don't know what, what we have today. We have some regulations today. The reason why I'm more concerned regulations is because it's human and it's yeah. led by people that are generally doing their best and trying, but are yeah. pretty disconnected from tech and innovation given their age and what they've seen. The recession thing is fine, but I know that everything is pointing to crypto adoption long-term. Absolutely. So that's what, yeah, I don't know either, but it is scary to think about. But it's funny because we're talking about the issue of regulations when everything we're trying to build is supposed to be decentralized. Yeah. And the counters to that are things like USDC that could just be frozen, yeah. which underpins all of DeFi. Yep. Yeah. Well, I guess not on the Terra side, but right, <laughs> yeah, right. for now. For now. Yeah. yeah. So what else goes into your thesis when sizing up a bet outside of sizing it up? Like how do you diligence teams as an individual, you know, you're running your own money, you're not at a firm. Like what's your path to learn about a play get that conviction, say yes or no. And what's that turnaround time look like? Yeah. So, um, I will talk to teams probably about 50% of the time, but I try not to because most other people will not talk to the team in while making their investment decision. And so if the documents are good, um, I won't feel any need to talk to the team. Mm -hmm. And it's more in the case where people are excited about a project. Um, and the documentation is really poor that like, I, like I want to know the underlying mechanism to know if it's, if it actually works or, you know, what the hidden risks are and, and there's always like something. That. Right. And so it's in those cases where I would really want to sit down with the team and, and flesh things out. That makes sense. So what are you most excited about today? Like looking ahead, you have your concerns on regulations and macro, but you still want to allocate capital. Yeah. I know you don't want to give up all of your best plays, but what, what would you say as you most interested? Yeah, so I think the big thing is we have not actually seen great lending plays yet. So, and, and you know, I say this as someone who loves Ave and uh, and you know the, the lending space in general, which is it is such a big market, and we have not seen anyone build what I think that we need, which is really a very solid lending primitive. So, one of the things that I think, like for example, that Reflexor is doing really well is that they're making rye uh, ossified on purpose, right? They're gonna make this thing as unchangeable so that people can build on top of rye knowing that this is exactly what rye is. And I think lending protocols need that too. So isolating risk, like, you know, I'm a big fan of silo finance. And so isolating risk um, and keeping the lending as simple as possible so that other people can build on top of those, uh, you know, uh, interest-bearing tokens, I think is going to be the next big thing. But right now, there's just, right, like if you were to build on top of like Ave Dai, um, you don't know what assets might be in that pool if you're, you know, building on top of it. And again, as you go 11 layers deep, you don't really know what's underneath. And so having to do all of that that research just makes it very difficult for composability. It does. And it's just so much layered risk. Yeah. I mean, anything in that stack goes wrong and you're, doesn't matter how right your thesis is. If something underlying goes wrong, you're screwed. Exactly. So what's the silo finance, like bull case, bear case? What's the thesis there? Yeah. So my, one of my thesis, right. And it's not just mine, right? Like Sam from Frax has this as well is like He's the a brilliant guy. I love them. Yeah. yeah. Is the holy trinity of sort of combining the interests of a lending platform 
a stable coin and a decentralized exchange. And the way that I look at this is you need the lending platform because um, it's debt ultimately mm -hmm. that's going to provide stability to the stable coin, which is you need a permanent bid um, on a stable coin in a market crisis in order to make sure that that stable coin has value. And so for people who are a fan of macro, you know, Brent Johnson has this theory called um, the milkshake theory, which is why even with all the turmoil going on, the dollar is is going to sort of outperform the rest of the world just because the euro dollar market provides such a permanent bid for dollars that realistically it's more likely that uh, we can all go down in real terms in terms of you know inflation, but in relative terms, the dollar uh, very well could could strengthen, and that that has big consequences. So Silo has its own stablecoin. Yes, yeah, so Silo has um, uh, USDS or Silo Dollar, um, but what's kind of cool about it is that it's focused on right now just being completely backed by other stablecoins, mm -hmm. so it doesn't have to worry about liquidity at the peg, which gets back to like what Frax is doing and what Terra is doing, and um, even you know what affects Dai and other people like that. Um, but so so I think like what you'll find is that you need a lending market to really integrate and make a stablecoin the exclusive token uh, or ex exclusive like monetary, whatever you want to call it, um, of the platform in order to have like its own sort of quasi economy, right? You need the stable coin because I think that's what's actually going to capture most of the value. Um, and then I think you need the, the DEX because if you, if you actually break away the DEX from the lending market, um, you have some misaligned incentives when it comes to the Oracle. Right, because the the market needs to know when to liquidate positions. Can you walk me through this though? How does the lending on Silo play into the stability of the stablecoin again? How does how yeah. is that linked? Yeah. So basically, um, imagine that somebody uh, creates a hundred Silo dollars by depositing one hundred USDC into the the minter. Right. Got it. So they then can take those Silo dollars, deposit them into let's say ABC Silo, um, and then because of the way utilization curves work, you would sort of expect that 80% of those silo dollars would be borrowed. And so then they would be cashed out, right? You would pre presumably be redeemed for USDC. And um, what that means is now you have $80 of um, debt denominated in silo dollar uh, combined with $20 left in the backing pool, right? And so potentially more dollars could be borrowed and exchanged out. But um, what happens is that once the uh, utilization breaks 80%, the interest rate starts jacking up pretty quickly. In curve. Exactly. Yeah. So now, so what happens when the, the interest rate jacks up? Well, it either attracts new deposits or it causes borrowers to close their position. And so it's this type of thing that ends up creating demand for um, a stable coin because of the debt denominated in it. And so like, I think that what Sam and what um, Doe are doing is terrific, right? And we talk a lot because something is ultimately going to have to back it. You know, the team does not want um, USDC to be the long-term backer of uh, of Silo Dollar. But what what becomes interesting is that you know someone like Sam could come in back a hundred percent of Silo Dollar with Frax, and now he has built-in demand, sort of uh, uh, how to how to put this in, in a wrapped way for Frax in a market crisis because people have to deposit Frax in order to benefit from um, the interest rate rises or from uh, to close positions in order to um, mint that silo dollar. Got it. The connection makes sense. And the DEX, I guess, is a nice 
thing to have, but it's not exactly necessary for your thesis. It's not necessary, not fully necessary, but I've looked into a lot of things and I'm like, wow, you know, if you could get a DEX in here, one of the things that you could do is you can make much more, um, you can make much more resilient oracles to manipulation by having something along the lines of saying, look, you know, the maximum amount of lending that can be done in a uh, isolated lending market is dictated by the volume of assets in this specific DEX. And what you could do then is, is you could have a lot more confidence as a depositor in this you know, isolated lending market to say, oh, I'm really confident that this Oracle is not gonna be manipulated and therefore um, you know, I'll use it. And so now you actually have a uh, sort of a circle of reinforcing alliances between the DEX, the stablecoin, and the and the lending market. And how does demand for silo stablecoin um, mean uh, growth in the value of their governance token? Um, I, I think the community is going to have to figure out how it's going to capture value. But um, you know, I, th I think it's I think it's pretty interesting uh, with with all the different you know, leverage. If you nail the adoption, there. it's usually pretty easy to get the value out of it. Yeah, so, so someone will figure it out. Yeah, and one of the things that you always told me you liked about Silo was those isolated pools. What's the magic there? Oh yeah, so I think the big thing is, um, you know, I love Ave and Compound, and I think they've done a terrific job. But you know Ave really well. I know Ave really well. So to see you go to a new play is yeah. So <laughs> so so it's funny because um, I hadn't reached out to Ave about this, but I'd reached out to the Rari team back in early 2021. And I had, said, I had been looking for someone to build this isolated lending market for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I had reached out to Rari. I said, hey, guys, like, love what you're doing with Fuse Pools, but you're, you're doing it the wrong way, which is um, you, you really should be isolating it down to just like the asset, ETH, and you know, maybe a, a dollar stablecoin, not you know, letting anyone create their own compound. Because the problem is, is you fracture liquidity too much. But basically, um, go, going back to uh, Aave, right, is... Um, the problem with Aave and Compound and, and Cream are these shared pool models. And what it means is that if you let one token into the shared pool, you risk draining the entirety of the funds in that in that pool. So if you have, we'll use two tokens. If you have, you know, a hundred Bitcoin in a pool, and then you know one, uh, I, I, I'm trying ABC to ABC token, ABC Doesn't token, matter. yeah, <laughs> yeah. one one ABC token, and you know there's a a mint, you know, an infinite mint issue with ABC, then someone will deposit an infinite amount of um, ABC token. It will get registered at a certain you know dollar value, which will enable someone to um, borrow. Uh, you know, potentially all of the outstanding Bitcoin in that shared pool. And what happens is, is the, the person basically just walks away, quote unquote, defaults on their debt, but they never really had collateral in the first place. So everyone who deposited that, you know, wrapped Bitcoin uh, is- Now is holding a worthless of, token. Yeah. And and with a shared pool, that means it's spread across multiple- Yeah. So, so I think there's what, there's eight tokens or something on Compound and maybe there's 30 on Aave. I actually don't know at this point. I got out of Aave. Definitely more. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, but-, um, but More than Compound. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's more than Compound. And so- um, and then cream has gone the other way, right? Cream has also been, uh, sorry, cream, you know, I don't know. They, they've really gone pretty far out on the risk curve of what they're willing Their to accept. Their claim listing as many as they could at the time. It, exactly. Yeah. But, but look at what's happened, which is they've been hacked like four times or something. And so no one, you know, is, is really willing to accept, um, depositing in a cream just because the risk is so high. And so the problem is not right. It's, it's one rotten apple spoils the whole bunch. 
And so the way to fix lending is to reduce lending down to a primitive, um, which is what I think that these isolated lending markets in, in silo does. So I understand why Aave or Compound wouldn't want to list a long tail asset because of what you're describing. Yeah. Infinite Mint, drain the other asset. Everyone else that lent the good asset is left with a worthless one. I get that. But how do you solve for that on silo? Because aren't you still listing those long tail, potentially risky assets? Yeah, so so you, you are. Um, the difference, though, is that everybody in the pool understands what's going on, which is that when you deposit into ABC token, um, the only three to sorry, ABC silo, uh, the only three tokens in that silo are the ABC token, ETH, and then um, silo dollar. So people that are lending to that pool understand the risk of the counter token being exactly. long tail and risky. Exactly. And so so they understand the risk, which I think is a really important thing. But the other thing is that the the risk is limited to the funds in that in that silo. So if you have ABC token get hacked, um, the only amount of funds that we lost throughout the entire system are the funds in that specific silo. If it's on Ave, it, if ABC were on Ave, the whole whole thing could potentially be drained. All of the assets, potentially, not just the counter. Wow. Okay. Exactly. Right. And, and so this this make a lot of sense. This is this is what we saw <laughs> with X Sushi, right? Yeah. So there was. Um, oh, sorry. Ave wasn't hacked, but but this was the concern, right? Ave could have been hacked. There was a bug in X Sushi where um, effectively they could have drained all of the funds out of out of Ave, um, and uh, you know it caused sort of a, a panic exit, which is why you saw eighty percent on on dollars. Um, on Ave a couple a couple months ago, as Justin Sun and a bunch of other people said, same thing you said, which is you know what the three percent and the four percent is not worth the associated risk, so they left. And and I think that there's a lot more demand for lending um, to be as uh, unrisky as possible, and that, that's where I get excited about isolated lending markets. So what's the downside of isolated? I'm guessing because you're not sharing assets, there's just not as deep liquidity. Or? Exactly. Okay. That's the problem. And you're paying more to borrow. You're not necessarily paying more to borrow, but um, what I would say is the the interest rate reflects the uh, perceived market riskiness of of lending to that asset. So ABC token, maybe you can borrow ETH. 15%, whereas if you were trying to borrow ETH against, uh, let's say, Uni token, um, maybe you could borrow it at 3%, right? Why do you think Aave and Compound won't do this? Why do you think they'll... Well, you, you lose a lot of economic efficiency in this model. Like, like, I don't mean to say that isolated markets are a silver bullet. It fixes everything. There are trade-offs, and the shared pool model is much more economically efficient, so... Back in the day when you were earning so much yield farming, you yeah. had no reason to want to lend out long tail assets. No. But today you kind of do. Right. So but 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 this is one of the things like and I'm so glad that you know the silo team is going out and and building this because I was desperate for a solution that I'm like, man, I don't I don't want to there 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 were like four cases you can think of as a Punnett square of when I wanted to farm certain assets and sometimes I was not okay with the platform. In which case, I didn't want exposure to you know the farm at all. But there are other times where I'm like, man, the the yield on this thing is crazy, but I don't want the impermanent loss risk because it's garbage. So if I could borrow that asset instead, that'd be great. But the problem was is that there there was no market to borrow these like just listed brand new tokens, and so I was hoping Rari would come out and do it. They've sort of done something similar with with Fuse. Um, and so, you know, we'll see if Silo comes out and uh, and actually delivers. It's kind of funny though, because Silo is what you described at the start of the episode. Yeah, right? you're concentrated DeFi focus. You started with Ave, you learned it well. Now you're still investing in that sliver. 
Right. And, and I think that there's so much more to do, right? And I would, I, I've, I've had this conversation with some other people and I would say, you know, look how much FinTech in like web two is still, you know, being heavily invested in, um, you know, growing like crazy, which is finances is being revolutionized. And just because, you know, compound Ave, Uniswap curve exists today doesn't mean that they're going to be the winners tomorrow. And so the thing, you know, I'm always looking for is, Hey, where, where is the moat? Where's the defensibility? Um, and, and I think there's much fewer protocols today that have that type of defensibility than and most the, people think. The defensibility in web three is much harder, right? Cause web so two, I mean, you, you build something, you don't see the value until you IPO 10 years later, but you have a better idea in crypto. You could attract liquidity and a mass evaluation overnight. That's which, why I hate when which cuts blue, both ways. I know. That's why I hate when people say blue chip NFT or blue chip DeFi because I'm yeah. like, maybe, like probably not. Yep. Yeah. I mean, look at what happened to plays that you mentioned. I mean, synthetics had an insane run, but they're not exactly the poster trial for DeFi anymore. Yeah. Um, Ave is now getting disrupted by Silo. <laughs> yeah. And it makes sense. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that we will continue to see this disruption and, and I think it goes down to who is going to build the most basic primitive without sacrifice, without sacrificing too much economic efficiency. Mm. That That's sort of my guess. But until we see that, and then we, we can find a way to um, have tokens capture value without, without charging um, the, the user, right? That's always the key. And I think it's what's so interesting about Frax and uh, Terra is the way their systems are set up, um, they benefit as they grow because, you know, there's no difference in minting, you know, from the user perspective, one Frax versus, you know, some Frax competitor, um, but the Frax ecosystem is built out and the way that Frax is capturing value is through burning their Frax share tokens. It's kind of funny that Terra's like, collateralizing with BTC as Frax decollateralized. They're both going exactly. the opposite way, which is interesting to see pan out. Exactly. And so, um, but it really comes down to like, both of those teams have figured out how to capture value without charging users. Um, and I think that's what all protocols are going to need to do. And part of the thesis here, this is sort of going back to sort of DeFi's holy trinity, is teams may find that they need to build multiple parts of the stack in order to capture value. So for example, I'm not sure lending markets can capture value long-term. Um, I think spreads will get very, very tight very from, for what a DeFi protocol can charge because why wouldn't you just move somewhere else? Like borrowing, especially as you know, risk becomes isolated, you'll move to a new platform. I mean, the, th the spreads get thin, volume picks up, but yeah. I mean, if the valuation of the governance token is too high, it might not make sense to your point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think the spreads will get thin. I think, you know, liquidation fees may be the only thing that that lending platforms can sort of maybe get a sliver of because people are price insensitive to liquidation fees. So so you have to look at like, okay, maybe a, a lending platform is just one piece of the puzzle. And so I'm not the only one with this thesis, but it but it's like, you know, you hear Ave maybe doing a stable coin, you hear, you know, a uh, curve. There's too many stable coins. Well, but but the reason is is because that's where it seems like the money is. I agree. Right? I totally agree. It just seems like everyone has one now. Right. And it's hard to keep up with. Just mentally, it's exhausting, as you know. Like yeah. you want by default, you want a stablecoin to be dumb and safe. Right. I don't want to have to think about it. <laughs> right. Unless I can get a, a good yield on it. One of the things we didn't talk about was value creation versus value capture. Yeah. Right. At the 
you know, where I like to do business is the seed stage, pre-seed stage. So I'm not too concerned with value capture at that stage. I want to make sure the product works. I want to make sure they have a real story they can execute. And there is a semblance that they could eventually capture value and something, a token makes sense eventually, but we don't need all the details right away. Where you shine is the DeFi side of liquid markets, where value accrual is paramount um, at that point. So how do you kind of distill value creation versus value capture? Well, so that's one of the ways I've had to sort of reinvent myself, which was back in the day when projects were launching or about to launch and they had tokens but no tokenomics, um, you could bet on value creation and hope the team figures out value capture later. Now that everyone is coming to market way, way earlier, um, let's assume that these are liquid tokens, right? But they're coming to market earlier, often before they have a product, you really do have to focus more on value capture because it's it's sort of the number one meme that's going through the community today, which is people have seen, oh, you know, maybe you have a trillion dollars in your lending protocol, but you're capturing zero. Or, you know, Uni is, is still capturing no value for their token holders. And, you know, they didn't even want to release the token, right? They, they were got rushed. Forced. They got forced to buy Sushi. Um, so I do have to spend a lot of time on value capture because um, it's all going to come back to cash flows. And, and people may not get that today. Um, we are in some ways in the, you know, 1999 web one thinking where like it's eyeballs and all this other stuff. And it's not right. It's kind it's, of funny. Cause you said 10 years ago when you read the lightning white paper, the reason why you kind of moved on from Bitcoin was because of the econ was not well thought out. And you're still here say today saying it's not. Yeah. Uh, mo most projects will never capture any value. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean their token, uh, won't go up. They could, you know, make themselves and their communities. Well, most of know. the original backers are gone by then. Yes. I mean, they're not the ones figuring it out and there's no incentives for the new people too, because the token was given to the people who didn't figure it out. Right. So, so those are games I try not to play. Um, just because you never know when the narrative's going to change, but, um, it is painful when you see like, you know, something go up 50 X just because you're like, how is this thing going to make money? And then, you know, you, you finally are proven right by the market. And, you know, it still crashes 80%, which would have been, you know, if it went up to 50X, you still would have made 10X your money. It's not so. even like a boomer, you know, how is this going to make money DCF thing. It's yeah. also like, just what's the sink for the token? Exactly. Like, and, it, you know, that is always not really well thought out Yeah. at all. I mean, the Web3 side, we're making bets here. I'm super bullish. It feels like early gaming, you know, stuff like that. But the stack is so confusing. I mean, you're, it's not like a game where, hey, we're going to do a game. Here's a token. It makes sense. People will love it. It's worth this part of a new stack that's 10 parts, and we don't know where value is going to flow or where we're going to capture value. It's like that's an example of something that's, I still think I'm very bullish, but it's very complicated. And to talk to teams about that is hard on both sides of value capture and creation. DeFi, I think it's a little bit easier, but the consumer approachability on Web3, I think, is a bit easier. Absolutely. So you get good with the bad. You mentioned Sushi forced Uniswap to launch a token. That's yeah. kind of a classic example of forcing somebody to do something as a project. What's your take on like the whole Sushi versus Uni debacle? And you got to give some background here because I don't know if everyone is around for it. Oh, so um, randomly, so Zero Maki followed me in another life and, um, you know, as his, his real self. And uh, he just messaged me one day saying, hey, man, um, I'm working on this project. Uh, would love to get your feedback on it. Like, what, what do you think? And and I'm like, oh, this is, I had no idea it was going to take off. <laughs> like it did. But but he, but yeah, he was like, hey, yeah, I think what we're going to do is um, 
we're, we're going to go fork uh, Uniswap. We're going to introduce a token. And, you know, because of this, you know, we'll, we'll steal their um, their TVL in, uh, in a vampire attack. vampire attack. No one had done that before, right? They are the first, I think that's right. They were the first vampire attack, I think. Uh, most well-known, yeah. Definitely yeah. maybe the first. Yeah. And, and certainly the most intentional about it, right? They were, there was no, hi- there was no hiding. We are like, doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, uh, yeah, so, so Sushi um, launched and, you know, the, the background was that they, uh, I think they just pulled in so much, I think both of them so had much about capital. 9 billion by the end of their, and, and what's interesting is that Uniswap's TVO went, I think went up like within the month just because the amount of publicity that SushiSwap even brought to Uniswap because people had to deposit in a Uniswap in order to put those LP tokens into the staking contract that would migrate over to, to Sushi. Classic leech. <laughs> but, it, but it was, I mean, you talk about a great farm, right? Like that was a farm where I was like getting sushi. like, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so I don't think X sushi existed at the time. Oh no, I'm confused. But, yeah. but, but yeah, but during that, and th- that was a pool one, right? So you weren't even taking sushi risk, but no, I was getting like 10% a day on those. Um, and so that was another one where I went like, yep, this is it balls to the wall. Cause like, cause I knew the guy and I'm like, he's not, he, he may screw up the contracts, but he may not, he's not intentionally trying to screw anyone. No, no. And then what was the dude's name? Was the hearth fire guy? Oh God, I forgot. But he was, I mean, oh, a uh, chef or master chef? No, no, that's a contract. Um, but but the the dude, I, I forgot his name. God, me too. Who stole the money? Or yeah, no, yeah. So 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 basically, he was he was one of the co-founders. Yeah, I, I don't know. I never knew that guy. I only knew Zero Maki. Yeah. And um, but what he did was he he sold out his sushi his sushi steak, um, like I don't know on the third day of launch or whatever. And so things crashed real fast, and then and then SBF took over and yeah. sort of saved the the project. It's kind of funny because they like Uni is obviously huge, but at yeah, that yeah. point for that time, people yeah. saw this as look, Uniswap is screwing us. They're not giving us real ownership. They're not taking a fee. They're not community oriented because yeah. nobody could contact the team. It's and Sushi won with that semblance. Like yeah. we are community owned. Here's the fees. We're going to list assets. We love the community. Here we go. I mean, they had a lot of issues lately, but well, and, and that, that was something that I'm excited to talk to you about, which is like, I'd love to hear your opinions on how DAOs should be structured and what the role of a community really should be in in crypto. It's it's tough. So the smartest person I think I've talked to on this is Tracks of Coordinate and Yearn. He took the vision with Gabe uh, Shapiro to do basically what we all know and what you kind of described earlier is delegation. So have a community, have a community, then have spokes where people are the smartest in their field. Maybe it's marketing, maybe it's code review, maybe it's econ, what have you, and delegate the power to them while allowing the token holders to ultimately control the power that you give them. So the delegation, I think, works. I think everyone voting on everything is stupid. I think, you know, having like these uh, leaders that try and decentralize the first two weeks is stupid. I think teams should be centralized, ship fast, decentralized over time, but don't dip until it works. Like Rune left die after it was complete, but now they have so much competition. Should right. it come back? You know, Kane left synthetics after they were taking off, but he ended up kind of having to come back. I don't know a story of a crypto leader that has successfully fired themselves, other than Vitalik. I think oh, Vitalik that's a great did point. a really good job yeah. because he always had this, he was just so good at bringing people in not being obtrusive, letting people yeah. shine, letting the community debate. But I mean, he's obviously a 
one of a kind. Yeah, I, I think the benevolent dictator phase needs to last much longer. And I think that like, like there's, no, there's no way to, I, I don't know how to actually implement this, but we need to get past like the short-term thinking of communities and having founders be scared that the community will disappear if they make um, good long-term decisions at the cost of token price. And so, you know, uh, going back to silo finance real fast, like there is something that's going to happen basically with, with convex, this is all public where um, they're going to receive a bunch of yield in their silo fracks um, curve V2 pool. But like, you know, I, I've told this to the team, I've told this sort of to the community, right? I, I'm just a community member, right? I don't have any special powers, but you know, I'm like, hey, this is not a good use of these emissions because the, the, the token isn't live, or, or I should say the project isn't live. There's no reason to encourage this liquidity until there's a tokenomic model and all Such this other stuff, thinking. right? And so that value could accrue instead to the treasury or to the dev team or any number of things. And, you know, the community has just been like, no, pump my token, right? And so you, you have to worry about that because it matters. Like, like, what, what I've also seen kill projects unfairly is um, I've seen projects where the community says, hey, we want this thing. We want more liquidity for the token. Like, you know, because they think funds want to get in, but they can't because liquidity is too low. And so, you know, the devs get pressured into providing liquidity for something. And then what you have is... Um, just emissions of the token, which kills value. It hurts the ability to acquire, you know, capital or users later down the line, but it's the right thing right now yeah. uh, to pump the price or keep the price elevated. And, uh, and, and I think it has much worse repercussions down, down the road. I'm with you. I think the developers and the founders are also, you know, they feel like they need to provide a crazy market cap yeah. because that's like the scoreboard for a lot of people. I mean, one of the first checks at Delphi was uh, Tokamak back when it was called Fractal because the idea was- Yeah, yeah. I, I invested with you guys exactly, on that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Let's not burn all of our tokens. Yeah. Let's you know own part of a governance token that can then direct liquidity for us to our pool for our project and we will own it yeah. right, instead of blowing it. So the token holders will own the token that is then directing liquidity. Obviously, very early play. They're, they're doing quite well, but I totally agree. They spend way too much on the emission side and it can kill a project. Yep. Yeah. So I think that short-term thinking, and, and and frankly, there's no way to get around it until you have a benevolent dictator that basically people trust in the community, and they say, nope, don't care what you think, we're not doing it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I have seen some teams, uh, anonymous people, anonymous leaders, I should say, um, say, nope, we're we're not, you know, shutting off emissions on the third day. Because, because, you know, they think they can pull the Wi-Fi. Like the difference was Wi-Fi was generating capital, right? Or they were generating, you know, cash they could distribute uh, to the token holders. Most of these projects they need to acquire. It's like, it'd be like a startup cutting their marketing budget on the third day after incorporation, right? I mean, the price is one thing, but killing the community is even worse. Exactly. I mean, that's tough. <laughs> and, and so I think like, I think maybe one of the things might be, um, you know, teams being more aggressive about kicking out bad community members. Uh, which I also think can turn things toxic. I was not close like with the sushi community, but I've read about what happened. And I think there were some really toxic community members that, you know, probably should have been removed from discords and, and other things like that. And don't let the problems metastasize, um, which then sort of brings back the question though, 
but isn't this decentralized, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I, I don't have a good answer. So the, I think the holes in what we're talking about are that me and you both want the same thing. We want like a centralized team to, you know, act in the faith of the community, have power for longer, decentralize over time. But I don't think there are enough solutions yet for that full DAO ownership, right? Like Coordinate is a really good one that we love and we invested in, right? It's a cool idea. There's 10 people in a DAO. We all think Tyler did the most work. Let's allocate rewards to him. It's crowdsourced, yeah. kind of like how Upshot does NFT pricing, crowdsourced, right? And it works and it's cool. That's only one component, Yeah. right? How, you know, Decentralizing a multi-sig is one thing. Decentralizing the Discord. How do you kick out those people? It's tough. It, it's real tough. Uh, so not exactly what you're saying, but I think one of the best like governance models that I've seen so far, I think it was Bancor, where they have, um, they basically let the community veto ideas where they, they basically cool. can have trusted signatures of like the core dev team propose changes. And rather than having to rally a quorum of people to pass every single change, the, the community has a week to reject it. And uh, if not, then by default, it passes. Default yeses are good. Yeah. I actually really like that. I, so I think that, I think that's a, sm I think it's Bancor. Uh, I should check that. Yeah. But, but I think that's going to be a smarter way to do it because my goodness, like having to rally everyone to, to change the multi-sig or change like, oh, you're moving from this, whatever it is. Like Got to pay our web designer two grand to prove this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, well, yeah, that, yeah. that and just having more funds be allocated upfront. Like, you know, yeah, people, people who do nothing for the project want to dictate like, Oh no, you're, you're making $300,000 or something like as, as a smart contract engineer. I, I don't think so. Are, are you, are, mil. right. Are, are you, are, are you aware of the market? And the answer is they're not right. Yeah. They're just like, look, you're spending my money. And, and it's like, no, 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 it's the Dow's money. It's not your money, but the loudest voices often have the lowest impact, right? Like when, you know, teams have come to me or they go to other funds, funds and, and, you know, sort of larger investors are like, cool, just, just do it. I'll vote for it. Just, we didn't even need a call. Just send me a text. Oh, right. Man. It's um, brutal. but it's, it's like, you know, the people with nothing have the most to So how complain. do you think we curate that though? I mean, like you're, you're, what you're describing is like a, a Reddit form or a terrible Facebook group. Yeah. Like, how do you, how do you think we streamline that? Um, yeah. So I think going to default yes might be the right way. Default yes is good. And I think we have to really centralize into expert thought groups. I mean, where I like people that. know what they're doing. I mean, it's not my idea at all, but yeah. I mean, having that is key because like, I don't, I'm a horrible design guy. Yeah. Like this Delphi logo, trust me, it was not made by me <laughs> and it's amazing, right? Like I shouldn't be involved in any of those decisions, right? And it obviously does a disservice to where I can add value. Right, so I mean that works, but I don't think we've seen it play out well, other than at urine so far, or yeah, I don't, I, I don't really have an example of where it's played out well. Yeah, I, I think you know, um, restricting the the scope of of work for any given group, breaking them off into teams is good. Um, you're right, because like I mean, I don't know how Apple works, but you know, my understanding is that it's it's functional groups, and so you know someone handles the audio engineering and they don't touch anything else. Someone handles the marketing. They don't touch anything else. And this is very different than the way most other companies are set up, which is divisional. Right. And so in, you know, the pixel phone or whatever, you have the marketing guy, the hardware guy, the software guy, the, the, whatever it is. And, um, and I think just moving to a more functional group for DAOs can make a lot of sense. So functional would be functional is you have sort of big teams, uh, within a single project working on just one thing. So, Got so it. for example, one of the reasons why Apple stuff works so well is because they use like the same like audio, uh, uh, 
I forget what it's called, but, but like audio engineer, or, engineer, or, but yeah. engineering team, right? For every single product, right? So each team doesn't have to hire their own. Exactly. So 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 it's it just sort of is passed around the table. It can take a little longer, but especially when you're building an ecosystem, which I think DAOs need to do, I think it could end up being a lot better. And then again, you know, you have one marketing team rather than you know putting marketer on. Hey, here's a new right. You know, Sushi launches Kashi, and Kashi was a really cool product that didn't get any love because it got no you know marketing budget, no, uh, no focus that the only way Kashi kind of got love was when it was forked and turned into Abracadabra. <laughs> and then that is a whole nother story. And, and, and look at a team that has done a really great job with, well, we'll ignore the, some of the sketchiness of the team, but, but they, they executed really well on the marketing. Um, even though they frankly did almost nothing on innovation of the code. That's true. So switching gears a little bit, a thesis that you and I have talked about a lot is the real world, like yes. projects that touch the real world. And I mean, I covered telcos, the cloud, and that's how we met on the wireless side. So I've always been of the opinion that, hey, you will never be able to compete with the cloud on storage, on compute, on things like that. Like these are, like these data centers, I don't know if people are aware of the time and energy that goes into the, you know, double, triple power lines, the roofs that retract for heating and cooling. I mean, the architect that goes into that is insane. Yeah. And the cost, and it works. It's cheap. It's, you know, five nines. Everything's fantastic. So when I see, you know, centralized storage running on your phone, that's my question list, yeah, obviously, yeah. Um, you know, I always get turned away from it, and I don't think it would work. And it eventually all is running on the cloud anyway. But there are a couple plays that you and I have done together that I think have done a really good job at that. I don't know where you want to take this, though. Do you, do you want to talk about the the one? Uh, yeah. Or we can talk about it. Oh yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, right. So pollen is like the next big thing that, that, you know, we're investing in and, um, really impressed by the team. And so, right. So we can talk a little bit more about my background, right? All I yeah, just said, like, so I spent, you know, five years in, in wireless and what we were doing was we were rewriting TCP IP so that devices could aggregate connections from multiple network interfaces. And by network interfaces, you gotta I dumb mean, that down. Yeah, so it's, by, it's by, big. <laughs> so by network interfaces, I mean, um, you know, your cellular uh, connection and your Wi-Fi connection. Mm -hmm. And we were really targeting smartphones so that you could, um, you know, aggregate those connections. But the bigger one was like the handoff, right? And the problem is that Wi-Fi is everywhere. Um, the issue is, is that Wi-Fi is really a very best efforts network. It doesn't, you know, tie back to a packet core, which sort of helps with quality of service. It doesn't tell you which Wi-Fi network you should be on. And so it provides a really terrible service, but it's way cheap um, because right, one of the things we talk about all the time is um, people think like telecoms, uh, wireless companies are tech businesses. They're really real estate businesses. And the hardest part about a, a wireless network is get, especially now that we're in the 5G world, where the the you know broadcast is is not very um, not very big, mm -hmm. um, and the the bandwidths that they're using for this spectrum are uh, are much higher, so they don't penetrate through things as well. Is you need to get the radio close to the user, and so um, uh, I can't think of a better way to build out you know the next generation network that relies on real estate than through a decentralized model. And that's why I think that, you know, this, this pollen network is, is going to be so, so exciting. Yeah. So 
I mean, a bit of a backstory, probably helpful too. I mean, you and I found helium given I was yeah. covering telcos. You're building something, which is, I've, I've been yeah. following helium since like 2014. They're older than people think, but yeah. the crypto aspect is new. And I mean, when we found it and we started deploying nodes, I mean, I know you have your AirPods, don't dox it, yeah. but I mean, mine have my helium you know, name on it from the, the node. I loved, I loved that. And the team was, I mean, it made sense for a couple of reasons. The first one was helium doesn't have to buy spectrum. Carriers spend tens of billions of dollars on it because they're using free spectrum. Um, they don't have to do a tower climb. American Tower Crown Castle yeah. worth tens of billions all over the world. And um, to your point, you needed 5G, which doesn't propagate far inside the house. And the carriers are putting it on buildings and utilities, and it's not piercing the glass, and it's not going inside, and they're shooting it down from the buildings, hoping to get in, yeah. and it didn't work. So for those three reasons, deploying a 5G node in your house made sense. But Helium did it with IoT, and they crushed the adoption because people would want to buy the h token, because it was convertible into uh, data at a set dollar price. So higher yep. H&T price, more data you get. Really makes sense, and it's a utility token that made sense. But you know, five, 600,000 nodes later, you know, the usage on the IoT side is not fantastic. Right. Um, so the idea was let's find a 5G version, I think that's why we kind of landed on Pollen. Yeah, and so, so going back to just like, hey, what's the problem with rolling out 5G networks? Um, you know, I was very close with the cable industry sort of during my uh, uh, startup times, and um, you know the way they described it was cables fight, right? Cables obviously moving in a wireless in a very big way, but cables fight has been to get out of the home, right? Because again, like you have have these energy efficient windows, which cause more wireless problems than anyone realizes, right? Like, and you have cement, and you have you know chicken wire, and you know staircases, and and other weird things that you go that just you know messes up the RF environment. Um, and so cables always been fighting to get out of the home, but the wireless guys are fighting to get into the home. And so, so it really becomes a real estate play of how do you, you know, go from outside to, to inside. And so yeah, the helium team has done such a good job with the IOT network. But, um, you know, one of the things that I've written about is like making money on theses that were ultimately wrong. And, um, I did well on helium cause I was so early to it, but, um, I really had thought that the tokenomics would be quite different so that they would be able to incentivize a 5G rollout when it came. Mm -hmm. Because I never saw the IoT network as a particularly interesting network. The, the problem is, is that when you're dealing with so, such low amounts of data, you cannot charge a lot. E even if you were to charge a lot on a per gigabyte basis, the volume of data is just so low, you would have to like presume that your toaster and your, uh, you know, your sprinkler and your, your everything is communicating all the time. And again, these might be, you know, 20 kilobyte packages. The, just use Wi-Fi; It's free. Or, or, and that's even a better one, yeah. right? But, but <laughs> yeah. like, but like, but even, but just on these messaging protocols, which is all the, the IOT network is capable of doing, it's very hard to rack up enough data, uh, in order to make that HNT burn re real interesting. Yeah. And so, um, because obviously Helium is working on on 5G and, and we know a lot of the the team behind that as well as the vendors that they're working with. But what was so interesting about Pollen was, you know, they already have a working system today. You can go out, you can install your eSIM, you can- I have Pollen running on my phone. I do too, yeah. I do too. <laughs> um, and so you can go out, you can, you know, install it. It's it's real simple, it sounds like when, so you have the simple one. I got the, I got four massive, uh, what they call buttercups, which are meant to go on like rooftops and stuff like that. I have to figure out how to set those up. So for everyone that's wondering, there's three different nodes for pollen. There's you know a square box you hang on your window, kind of propagate 65 degrees in a cone 
Then you have- And that um, took you like five minutes, right? It to, was so quick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the Camilla is for inside. It's, is it circular? I forgot. It's a- uh, uh, I don't have one. It yeah, square. Yeah, yeah. And then the buttercup is the big boy, like industrial. Yeah, yeah. No, that you bought a ton of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Tyler's network now. Right. Yeah. But no, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's 5g first. Yeah. Right. And the, the thing that I really like about it is because you and I spend all day behind a computer looking at DeFi, looking at web three. Well, you and I have been talking, I mean, it's also some as additional background, right? Back in 2017, we were actually raising for a token sale for this decentralized wireless network. So I know all the ins and outs, right? We, like my company was the first one, as far as we know, to get a CBRS license in Connecticut in 2017, right? So we were so early on this. And the only reason we didn't pursue it was because, you know, when we ran it past the lawyers, we, we got bad legal advice. And they're like, Tyler, you could go to jail. Like, don't do I this. I wish you had a different lawyer. So do I. <laughs> yeah, I really so, do. but look, well, we'll make it up on Pollen, right? Yeah. But, um, but so basically that's, that's what happened, but we've been looking for a play like this forever, forever, right? And like that was the first, the first thing that, I mean, that's how we got introduced. Sherry yeah, we was because we were talking about this ICO Sherry for Kaiser. the, yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's, what's funny. I mean, you and I have looked at every wireless play yeah. in the space. It's not like an overnight success and it's just rolling out, but to find something, it took us that long. Yeah. And I mean, when you have a yeah, thesis, tw 2018 to 2022. Yeah, easily. And, and we've we've largely passed on on that, right? with the exception of helium. Yeah, we've passed we, on everything. We pass on everything. Everything. Yeah. The cool part though was the team is just so stacked. Stacked. Yeah. I mean, when you have conversations, so uh, you know, Anthony will probably you know kill me for bringing this up, but I mean, he's a guy that, or maybe not, but I mean, he's a guy at nine ten o'clock on a Sunday night while he's on vacation has called me until two in the morning to help me and teach me about the network, and he doesn't have to do that. I mean, this guy coded Waymo. <laughs> you right. know, like, I am well below his time spent, but I mean, that level of maniacal, you know, I want to make sure all the edge cases are solved because you know what, Tommy, it could be for 10,000 people out there. That's really powerful. Exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. Those edge cases will pop up yeah. just definitionally, just, yeah. it's just rare. But yeah, I mean, so the thing that I was always looking for when we were looking at, at these different plays was, you know, um, there are a lot of RF engineers out there and helium has done some really cool stuff in the IOT space. But, you know, the IoT boxes are much more like Wi-Fi, right? They don't come back to, you know, a central controller like a, like a packet core. Um, you know, they aren't, you know, they don't have to deal with any type of semi-licensed spectrum like CBRS. And so they've built a great hardware product. And then, you know, they built a nice mobile wallet and all this other stuff. But what I was so just blown away with, and this is, you know, Anthony's background in, in Waymo, is he gets hardware, he gets software, he gets the intersection, which is its own thing. Like he just gets everything. And I can't imagine a stronger team lead that you could sort of put onto a project like this. You can't because nobody is, has that telco crypto hardware knowledge. Right. And we found leads with only one and it's yeah. so irritating. Because you and I have tried to piecemeal, you know, you said spread out talent. Like we've tried to put people together. Yeah. And it's hard because then you have founder issues and culture shock and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, Kurt too, like co-founded Boost Mobile, like yeah. bought by Dish, major telco. Well, I mean, Dish doesn't really have a live network, do they? But other than Boost, but you know, that's a huge like business meets telco kind of experience. But the thing I was getting at was one of the reasons why I really like this is because it touches the consumer in a real way on two different sides, right? The first one is they're out there deploying the nodes you know, running around, talking about different antennas, you know, providing coverage where it should be. And then the other side, people are actually using it, Yep. right? So you have usage in the real world from two different people 
incentivized by a token that actually makes sense because it's basically just stored bandwidth at the end of the day going up in value. Yeah. Well, look, and I would say it's one of those things where how many times have you gone over someone's house and said, hey, what's your Wi-Fi network, (laughs) right? And so like, I would love it if the world would change to like, hey, what's your Wi-Fi network? And say, oh, dude, I have pollen. Don't worry about it. And and everyone eventually is just going to have a pollen eSIM on their phone and they go, oh, then I won't worry about it, yeah. right? And so there's no, going to be no more password sharing or anything like that. Because again, you know, when we start, I started my company in 2014, there was no CBRS, right? That didn't no. really start rolling out. Like there were inklings like in 2015 and then much more deep discussions in 2016. And then 2017, when we were looking at our ICO, we had to spend $35,000 for basically your dandelion. Right, like just because the hardware just cost a thousand bucks today. Yeah, now it's like twelve hundred bucks, and that's the note. It just it just didn't exist, like and like it was just so early. But like the the ecosystem has really developed. And CBRS is the free spectrum that Pollen uses. Yeah, Yeah, so it's three and a half gigahertz, which actually has pretty good propagation. And so to put it in in perspective, um, you know the Wi-Fi of uh, let's say up until two thousand eight, I think, was all on two point four, and then I, I forget when they added the five gigahertz band to most modems or most routers, but, uh, but now, you know, you have five gigahertz as the high band. So three, five is pretty good. It gives pretty good propagation. And, um, you know, I think that the power constraints means that the, the broadcast radius is like 1500 feet. It's so it's, far. so it's further than Wi-Fi. Yeah. I'm in Miami and I'm putting nodes on my friend's balconies and I'm checking to make sure I'm hitting them. H- have you tested to see how far oh, yeah. it can yeah. go? Nice. Yeah, yeah. It nice. goes far. Nice. Um, and it's not hard to set up. It's very yeah. easy. But you know, the, the funny part was when I got a job doing equity research on the cloud and telco side, it was at a point when Verizon and AT&T, which are like the dominant, were the dominant players in the US, they had it under wraps, right? Their management team was super ignorant. They didn't want to do any innovation. And then a company called T-Mobile came along yeah. and they did very basic things like simple pricing. Like you see 40 bucks, that's what you're paying. Right. Verizon, you get a bill, it was 40 plus five plus eight. Plus exactly. seven. It sucked. But the cool part was, T-Mobile was wireless first, right? AT&T and Verizon spent tens of billions of dollars doing SD uh, network function visualization and software-defined networking and trying to get ahead. Well, well T-Mobile did all that stuff, That's right? True. So, So what I would say like the real benefit of T-Mobile was um, T-Mobile was 4G first. And so so the thing was is that with T-Mobile was they were real small, right? And so AT&T tried Tiny. to take over T-Mobile back in 2011 and um, oh, it I got, yeah, yeah. So, oh, so wow. AT&T tried to take T-Mobile over. They agreed to a deal and it got blocked by the FCC because of anti-competitive reasons. Um, and so as part of the breakup conditions that T-Mobile had negotiated, and I'm forgetting the exact numbers, but I think they got $2 billion in cash and something like $4 billion in spectrum. God. And so between these two things, right, T-Mobile was perfectly aligned to basically start with a greenfield network. And so a greenfield network means when you start from scratch. That's and what I thought it as, like a clean wireless first. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so what happened was, is that Verizon and AT&T had all of this legacy tech that they had to keep running um, and then upgrade into this 4G environment. And if you look at like Reliance Geo in, in India, yeah. They were a true greenfield network, right? They didn't even have a 1G or a 2G or a 3G network. No wires. They started with 4G from day one. And that was what was so interesting. And it's why, you know, they can offer these these crazy plans because, you know, they have the best SDN and NFV and VNF, um, uh, all these acronyms. And so- uh, Too many. <laughs> right. So, but they can, they can do these things that- that just the other carriers couldn't do. And then, you know, they probably have monopolistic underpricing, but that's a different, different story. 
Um, and so I think something like that very well could play out with, with a pollen, but I do think that they're more going to be an offload network. Like I don't think they're ever going to move into the macro cell, um, environment, meaning like, Hey, like, I don't know when you're out in Montana, you're probably not going to be, you're getting coverage from a tower miles away. Exactly. Yeah. I think they're not, but like, who knows? Like for all we know, like, Hey, next spectrum auction, you know, maybe pollen goes out and buy something in the seven mega hundred, 700 megahertz band. And you know, there are partners out there that I think are incentivized to work with them that have a lot of spectrum, right? Partners yeah. like, I mean, there's dish out there that has a lot of spectrum that they have to use or they'll lose it. Right. I mean, the thought that you can lose spectrum that you spend billions on, that is also a huge competitive advantage to have, will force carriers one way or another, and I have no idea who they'll work with, to actually deploy that. Yeah, so so the, the background for this is that the FCC has build-out requirements. And so when DISH has basically bought a ton of spectrum, I think since 2012 or so, the FCC gives them, um, I think it's 10 years, or I forget what it is, but it, it's a certain amount of time for them to deploy and when they say deploy, they mean it has to cover X amount of the geographic region for in which they won. And DISH, as you know, basically has done almost nothing. nothing. So if they need to have – the way they've gotten around it, believe it or not, is they've done a lot of like these extremely long-range IoT deployments <laughs> that no one uses. Not, not just that no one uses, is that no one really can use it. And so it's been a constant back and forth fighting with, with the FCC – but it could be real interesting that maybe Dish says, "Hey, you know, we have this macro cell agreement where, as part of the um, agreement that T-Mobile and Sprint could merge, uh, they had to divest some assets. One of them was Boost Boost Mobile, um, and uh, uh, they also had to give Dish access to their macro cell network, sort of through an MVNE agreement, um, so that that Dish had time to build out the macro cell layer." And and you wonder if perhaps Dish just gives their spec not gives but like leases their their spectrum to to pollen. So me and you did a report. You and I did a report on helium. I don't know a month or two ago. Uh, three. It's three months. Yeah, God, time know. flies. Yeah. And we covered a lot of major issues. And I mean, the post was about the issues, yeah. right? And that those issues also apply somewhat to helium, not or sorry to pollen, not on the project specific things, but on the broader thing. So I'll play devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things with pollen and helium is you're using the internet connection in your own home, right? To your point, cable is in the house, wireless is trying to get in. Do you ever foresee an issue with the wireline guys saying, hey, you know what, you can't do this, you're out? Definitely, and I can tell you having worked closely with the, the cable operators, they are definitely sitting there going, why am I carrying the backhaul so you guys can go make a lot of money, right? And that's not, they didn't think about that even with um, like pollen or helium or whatever one in mind, but their concern was that the big carriers like the Verizon and AT&T T-Mobile would start putting um, nodes into people's homes. And in fact, T-Mobile did this, but T-Mobile was so small at the time and they, uh, they it, this thing never really got adoption because they never pushed it. Um, the concern was always that that the big MNOs would put radios in people's homes and then they would use their cable connection to, to roll it out. And so, you know, the cable companies currently have every legal right to ban that traffic because it's commercial traffic on a residential connection. The way that I guess that it will play out is that because the cable companies don't want to be regulated, um, they're just going to say, hey, you know, no problem, but this is a business line now and you have to pay another 20 bucks, 30 bucks a month. Who cares about paying um, 20 bucks a month when you have that node? <laughs> right, right. Because because you'll there's a very decent chance that you'll end up making more. And if you look at 
cellular consumption, these numbers might be a little old, but it's something like 75% of all cellular data is consumed indoors. I think it's even higher now. Yeah. yeah. And so the the savings, whether it's through a direct like offload agreement or some other things that you know you and I have discussed on the side, um, are, are, are massive. So 20 but, or 30 I mean, for, bucks is, for, is nothing. So you said that cable is competing to get out of the home, right? But I mean, if cable were to launch a full-fledged wireless offering, they would they make, have. They have. They have, and they'd make money off that. But they can make that money just by charging more for the wireless service of, say, Pollen, without having to do anything. Exactly. So it's so light, and, and you get competitiveness and lock-in on, I'll pay for 10 gigs if they sell it to my house. I don't care what I have to pay for it. Right. Just so I could deploy more nodes, and I think they would want to charge me for it. Right. And I mean, I think that's, that's the big thing, which is, you know, is it going to be cable versus everyone else or is cable going to sort of come into the fold fold and they'll, you know, get their pound of flesh just indirectly. Yeah. That's a big one. What are the other issues I guess we should talk about with Pollen? I, I think backhaul is the big one. That is the big one. Yeah. I mean, the other one is probably congestion on CBRS, right? It's a free swath of spectrum with priority access lines in there, but I don't really foresee that being an issue. I don't. Cause look, I mean, so there is some congestion in 2.4, especially when you go to cities like New York. Um, but, but here, here's one of the things that people don't know. So, uh, Wi-Fi works on a very polite standard where basically when there's a lot of congestion, when, when lots of people have, uh, Wi-Fi uh, routers are in their home, um, it causes longer spaces between the time when Wi-Fi will broadcast, which if you have, you know, a thousand people in a room, just imagine being real quiet to make sure, oh no, is it my turn to talk? And, and, and stuff like that. <laughs> and so, so it's called listen before talk. And so um, what 5G, uh, or sorry, we should say the 3G PP standard that, you know, Pollen and, and the 5G uh, sort of networks use um, is coordinated by this packet core. And because it's coordinated, you don't need to have as many pauses, uh, irrespective of how much congestion there actually is on the network. So I think that not only, you know, is it a higher band, it can handle more traffic, just the fact that it's being coordinated by a packet core means that there will be um, more throughput, even if there's a lot of nodes in an area. Is there anything, like not to be on the hot seat, because we have a lot of the same views here, but is there anything that you think Helium could do to be successful in 5G? And I mean, my biggest concern to be critical because I like the project and like the idea is that they've used a lot of their token supply for IoT. Yeah. And the token prices already run up so much. So you don't have as many tokens for 5G incentives and you're giving them away at such a high val, there's not as much upside or incentive to do so. I mean, do you think that there's a counter to that out there? Um, the community would have to really come together and agree. I agree with you, but <laughs> but the community will 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 it have to come together and really see that, hey, look, like this tokenomic model does not work. We do not have enough incentives to, you know, build out that next network. And, you know, I'm sorry, guys, but, you know, we have to go devalue the token 80 They 90%. do have a, like a high dollar value to give out. But I don't think the people deploying nodes are thinking in terms of dollars. Well, that, that's the concern, right? Yeah. Is, is are people mercenaries who are, and I think they mostly are. They but, are. But, but oh, yeah. So, so, I mean, are people mercenaries and they are, um, you know, going to deploy these nodes because they see that the payback time is 12 months, 15 months. Um, or are they going to say, Hey, you know, this is a new network pollen. I can get on the ground floor. The payback, we calculate the payback time at 14 days. Depends on the, how many nodes are out there. Yeah. Right. So, but at least like right now when we're, when we're filming this, like it was a 14 day yeah. payback period. Um, and so, and that's, that's before the token has run and up. And that's unheard of on hardware, which is yeah. generally months, if not years. Right. 
Um, I think Bitcoin mining is about 10 months. So, yeah. but basically like the problem is, is that, um, so I, th I think basically the helium community could pull this off. I'm just trying to be as unbiased as possible. I obviously have a preferred winner here, but, um, I run a helium five, you know, in my apartment. Yeah, so do I, yeah. I, I run four. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, um, and honestly the way like we've seen wireless play out is, you know, four winners in the U S down to three after T-Mobile yeah. merged with Sprint. Um, I mean, are there going to be multiple decentralized players? I'd probably say well, that not. that's what I was going to bring up was, look, it's very possible because like we know so many mercenaries in this space, they're running both. Right? I just don't. I mean, it's just hard to convince people. It's not hard to convince people to run a node, but do you really want two in your window for most people? If if they pay enough, that's people, true. people will. And yeah, so yeah. so I don't know. Right. But it's that's the question at hand. Yeah. And so I think the bigger issue is. Um, it's going to be all the soft stuff, right? So, so I mean, one, you have to get the tech right. And this is where I think, you know, Anthony is the, the, the right guy because right. it has to be five minutes or less, right? If like, I think my grandma could deploy one of these pollen nodes. I mean, I, um, she just has to be able to hold the suction cup and yeah, right, hold right. the node up. Yeah, that's it. But like, but, but right, I mean, it has to be like grandma proof. Yeah. Um, and so once you, I think there's that just as the bare minimum and the rest is going to be, who can keep their token price the highest because it has real utility. And I don't mean like pump and dump games. I mean, like they're going to have to find the right business relationships in order to make sure that when these, you know, people who are mercenaries, they're, they're earning the tokens and, and they're dumping them. That needs liquidity. It needs, you know, stronger hands to go into. Yeah. Um, and so whether those are tokenomic games like pool twos or even better would be, you know, an agreement with dish or Verizon or whoever it may be. I mean, it'll be real interesting because I, I think that we're so focused on the U.S. right now that um, we haven't really thought through the fact that there might be multiple winners in the world, just um, but, but, but regional winners. That is a good point. And one of the things I really liked about the early Helium community was how smart and how viral these, you know, frankly, nerds went. Yeah. Me included and you included just deploying different types of antennas and locations and sharing their setups and different things they've tried. And that was crazy back then. I don't think it was on Discord then. I think it was still a Telegram chat for antennas and then they switched. I don't remember. But I mean, to your point- like they, they just people, had the forums too, yeah. Yeah, the forums. But to your point, I mean, you can have that on a regional basis. You can have people deploying countries around the world. Well, and, and what will be interesting here, and, and again, maybe there's more than pollen and helium, is that you know um, CBRS today is just in the United States. Um, I suspect the standard itself will be adopted in other places, but every place has its own little quirks and it takes time to accommodate those quirks. And so there's sort of going to be a question of, hey, you know, when you know the EU comes out with their CBRS like uh, uh, approval, um, you know, would someone like a helium or a pollen be better suited because they have a bigger team, they have more money to go after that, or would that greenfield opportunity be better for a new startup? Like um, and, and the hardware is just going to keep getting cheaper. The software is going to keep getting better. But I, I just think of it as like web web one, which was if you could just freaking deploy a website, you were you know well on your way to a hundred million dollar valuation. Um, and so we're still very much in the tech side of things. In three years, as this stuff gets commoditized. Um, you know, we may see a lot more competition from from upstarts in Kenya and India and Brazil. And I mean, stuff all, like that. already. I mean, I spent what four or five grand on my Helium Five node, and I spent what twelve hundred on my Pollen version. 
and it's the same yeah. specs, or maybe not the same specs, but you know, I mean, that's a huge decrease in six months. Yeah. I mean, let alone what you're describing is three years. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Well, and I just meant from the simplicity side, which yeah, is is like I think it's the software. Like, and, oh, so basically, back to Web One, which is, you know, the hard part was standing up a website, like you know, and it was just text on a page and all this other stuff. And, and now, you know, you can do this with like, you know, card and a bunch of these like <laughs> other things and you do in like 10 minutes, like it is, you know, Wix. Gra- grandma Wix there, you yeah. can go like grandma proof. Yeah, that is true. So obviously disclosure, Delphi Ventures is invested in Pollen and you're invested as yeah. an angel as well. So just to close out, Tyler, we have a few minutes left. I'd love to know what would attract you away from crypto. What would be so exciting? I don't know, magic at this point? Aliens? <laughs> AI? I don't know. I ask myself all the time because I want to be cognizant of what happens. But do you think in the next, you know, timelines matter. Like within the next five or 10 years, you'll find yourself not involved day to day in crypto? Um, that's a great question. Uh, so I, I think the big thing would be if there was a really hostile regulatory environment. Mm-hmm. I think if it started becoming really dangerous to be in crypto, I, I probably would need to take a step back. That's fair. Um, but but there's really nothing that I'd rather be in right now. I think it's the most important, most exciting place to be. And if you think it's important to, you know, make it easier for people to transact and, you know, remove middlemen and let people, you know, uh, save their wealth from kleptocratic governments, you know, this is, this is more than just a money-making play. This is like a real you know, mission that, you know, you can get behind and feel good about what you're doing. Do you think the U.S. will eventually be accommodating or do you think eventually they're going to crack down? And I mean, people are already leaving. Uh, so a lot have left. So we know a lot of people that have left, yeah. right? And these are the people that have, you know, there are certain type of people. Let me put it like that. Yeah. I'm not sure, uh, but but we know lots of people that have stayed. Most of the people we know have stayed, right? That's true. We only think about the people that are left. We've only people think about the left, yeah. but obviously, like even FTX going to Bahamas, uh, Bahamas, and where were they? Oh, they were in uh, Hong Kong before or Singapore. I don't know, but they they were they were in I think they were in Hong Kong before, okay. and so you know it, there have been problems, um, but that's sort of more been like on the like I literally can't do this this thing, and and I think like the issue would be. Are we going to see a, a much more hostile like government in terms of like whether taxes or like disclosures or I, I don't even know what it would be, but like I've been kicked out of rounds for being an American, and um, you know you basically have to jump through a bunch of hoops in order to get in those rounds through offshore vehicles and and stuff like that. Tyler, it's been awesome having you on. Where Thanks can so people follow you if they don't already? Do yeah, your Twitter offhand or oh yeah yeah. yeah. So <laughs> so my Twitter is at tbr90. Um, and I'm the uh, the cowboy crypto punk. I love you, man. So. That's five years in the making. It's there been fun. Been love it, man. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Delphi podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on your podcast app, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter or LinkedIn. Stay tuned for our next episode. Out soon.